This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello, hello. This is Lisa, and this is That's Messed Up, and I did it in the wrong order. No big deal. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kara. You guys know what we do on this pod, I hope. We talk SVU. We talk about a true crime that the episode is based on, and we interview a fabulous guest. But first, we catch up. And I'm in LA. Lisa's in New York. We've been uh, in, not in the same city for a couple weeks. I'd love to hear the latest. What's well, going on? the latest is the fires in Canada have come to breathe their orange smokes onto New York. <laughs> and the um, the air is grim, the quality is bad, and we're all just waiting for the Vanderpump reunion for tonight. Yeah, so, that's the only on thing the menu, that's going to clear the air. <laughs> <laughs> on the menu, we're going to have goat cheese balls, pump teenies, not about the pasta salad, oh. and lobster corn dogs since we can't support Schwartz and Sandy's. This is amazing. And I came up with a game. So, you know, a few seasons ago, Sheena was just like, Rob hung up my TV in seven minutes and I timed him. So we're going to play pin the TV on the wall. Yes. This is and so good. Then I have an 8 a.m. flight to meet you for our show tomorrow in San Francisco. So, oh my God. I, I'm so like jealous that you're three hours ahead. So you're actually going to watch the reunion. Like you're going to watch it like while I'm giving my kids dinner. I mean, it's going to be on <laughs> so early for you. I know. The only thing I'm scared of is people better shut their fucking mouths until the commercial breaks. I know. Um, And then tomorrow I'll watch it uncensored because, you know, this will just be live television. Yes, yes. The, the Peacock versions. I haven't been watching those, but I've been seeing like some of the clips with the swears and they are satisfying. <laughs> it's um, so much better. I hate puritanical culture. Swears should be on television. Oh, yeah. I, people it's always natural. apologize to me for swearing in front of my kids. And I go, I swear in front of my kids. Like, I just am really trying to, like, take the power away from swear words with, like, my kids. I agree with you. I was at my friend's kid's party once and, like, Katy Perry's, a song came on where, like, bitch was or something. And one of the other parents tried to get on a high horse. And my friend was just like, they don't even know. They don't know. If don't you don't know make nothing. a big deal you're about it, crazy. yeah, like you're yeah. the one being nuts, and you can leave. Actually, like you don't have to be here if this <laughs> one word here. bothers you. I just feel like we we swear as people, and then if you don't swear as a person, you don't have to. But like yeah. some of us swear naturally. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like I don't know. They're just words. It was such a big deal in my house to say "shut up" or to say like. I mean, we would never say like fuck or shit, but to say like even call my brother a prick, I'd get in so much trouble. Like just any bad words. And I was like, who? Like, I mean, I'm gonna obviously try to teach my children kindness towards each other, but like the swearing thing is like, it's too much. Like we've just assigned these like words that are bad and it's crazy. It's like virginity. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, the limit does not exist. The limit does not exist. I am, so obviously we're in the time machine. So we're a little bit late on some things. And obviously by the time you listen to this episode, Scandaval will be, we'll all know what the big surprise is. And obviously, but you're getting us in real time right now. In our real time, we don't know what's going to happen tonight. And we got to talk about the season finale of Yellow Jackets. 
First of all, what is with this show having nine episodes? I turned it on. I go, oh, okay, episode nine. So it's the penultimate episode. And then I forgot that last season was nine as well. That's such a weird number. I feel like shows usually have eight or 10 or like six or 10 and nine. Did you do something to your hair? Oh yeah, I got it done by your girl. It looks great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my God. Do you love it? Yes, I love it. You'll all sorry see it, it took Francisco. me. Yeah, sorry it took me a few <laughs> minutes, but it just hit me where I was like, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, she did like a great <laughs> job. She she also like she was so she was really cool. She's obsessed with you. I was like, I had to like tell her, like I don't know. She just like didn't realize what a big stand up you are, and I was like, "Oh yeah, she doesn't brag about herself, so I usually do it." Like when we <laughs> like we met detox, and she's like, "How do I know you?" And I was like, "Bitch, she's huge on in stand up, and she's on TikTok and oh. Instagram." Well, I saw our friend Mateo Lane yesterday and I told him about DragCon and I was like, I spent $50 to meet Detox. And he goes, I mean, I could text her. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then I fibbed a little because I said, yeah, she said I look familiar. And I went, yeah, this is humiliating for us. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we waited in line for you, bitch. Yeah. No, your hair looks incredible. Was the pug there? There's usually a pug oh, named no. Darla. I didn't see a pug, but that sounds really cute. But, um... It was she's a, a chatter. Long, it was a long process, but she's also like such a boss. Like she's in the middle of just like talking to me about kids stuff, and then she goes, "Don't do that." Like and the way, like the way, like. But I I wanted to say to her assistants, I wanted to be like, I feel like she's really gonna teach you guys to be great hairstylists. Like she's really like, she doesn't like just she doesn't mince words. She's just kind of like, no, see now, see how you can't do that. Like don't touch this part. Like and it's really like, but. She, I was a little bit of a mess and I feel like she really fucking took me to church with this haircut. She changed my life because now with my new allergies, I can't even do hair products and I still get complimented on my hair. And like, I love my new, I've never done a center part. Like she really is a visionary and an artist, not just like um, a job to her. Like she's really And the salon is like beautiful and everybody's like really nice and friendly. There was a crazy woman in there. I like wished, (laughs) I was like, you got to tell Lisa about this because there was this woman next to me that was with a different stylist and I didn't really hear it. I was zoned out. I heard the woman later giving the stylist like fake compliments and all I saw my stylist and everybody looking at each other giving eyes. So when the woman walked out, our girl was like, what the fuck was that? Don't let anybody talk to you like that. Like if she talked to me, like I was almost going to say something to her. Like I was about to like step to her. Like what, what do the you fuck? mean fake compliments? Like so I'm what having a hard first, time understanding. Well, So what happened first was this woman yelled at her stylist and was like, no, this isn't like the right color. This isn't the right thing. But it was like, it was an extension that she asked them to use. And they're like, yeah, this is just a, not a good extension like that you brought us or that you want in your hair. Like we can do X, Y, Z, but like this is not the right thing. And she was, she stood up and like ripped her robe off and was like acting all huffy. Then I think they got her to calm down. I missed all this. I might've been getting a wash or something. I missed all this. When she sat down, she goes, you know, let's say the woman's name is Lisa. She goes, you know, Lisa, I know that you're um, a stylist, but you're also very quite good at color. And it was just like this really flat compliment where she was trying to like get the vibe back after acting like a totally insane person. And so they were all just like, it was just funny hairstylist chatter. Like as soon as she walked out, everybody was just like, she was like, the girl's like, I'm supposed to wash her hair next week again. And she, and they were all like, cancel on her. You can't have somebody like that in the salon treating you like that. Like it was wild, but you know, I was there for five hours. I was bound to catch something. Five hours? Girl, 
It was crazy. I can tell you more about it off mic. It's like too, it's too much, but it was five full hours. But wait, should wait, we get Did in? you even plan for it to be five hours? I planned for it to be three with a possible like overlap. And then Jared was already picking up the kids and taking them to the playground. And I just was very late to meet him. But the kids were so happy when I got there. They were like eating pizza and like having a blast. So I had nothing, no reason to stress, but I was, it was, it's a long fucking time to sit somewhere. I just was dying at the end, but worth it. I do love that. I do love it. I love the color. Yeah, I did. I this is it. like, I styled it myself this time, but she did a great job. Anyway, so yellow jackets fucking, when it. I saw what happened, I was like, oh my God, this is the finale. And that's when I checked the episode count and was like, oh my God, there's only nine, but you know, there is going to be some kind of bonus episode coming out. Well, that's what I hear, but like, yeah. I don't buy it. Where is it? Well, the the people said, like the people that created it, I read something where they said that they want to like give everybody time to like process and then it's going to probably happen in a few months or something. But- Okay, you know what? It's like, if you want to do what they did, fine. It was done poorly. It was bad. It was really bad. bad. It, was a it was like a phony fake scene. It wasn't believable. It was stupid. They got rid of a character that I think is kind of- the lifeblood of the show. <laughs> yeah. Was that the words you're looking for? Like, well, no, because I love Melanie Linsky's character so much too, but I yes. love, I love um, Christina, whatever. If you don't want to know what happened, fucking fast forward. I'm not yeah, speaking Yeah, you got to fast forward because we're going to talk about this and it's going to have major Yellow Jacket season two spoilers. So fast forward, we're going to talk about it. Like Juliet Lewis and Christina Ricci had such a chemistry, such a dynamic together to keep them separate all season. And then finally we get them together and it's like, finally. And Juliet Lewis That's is like in the call, dead now. Like, and it was like, the scene was hokey. That's the word. Like it didn't ridiculous. make sense. It was ridiculous. And I actually read the Vulture recap in anticipation of this conversation because I know you read them too. And I was like, they pointed out a lot of stuff. They were like, first the daughter shows up as a person interrupting. And then the other girl, it just like, it It was all like too capery and wild. And it was also like, are you guys really going to hunt Melanie Linsky? Are you not? Like, it was so all over the place the whole fucking episode. Then in case, like, you know, so you know what we're talking about. Obviously they kill Juliet, adult Juliet Lewis's character. And that and it also takes away from the compellingness of the young actress. Cause like, I loved the dynamic, the shift between young and old. So it's like to know that she's gone and still watch the young is strange. I liked yeah. having our core there. Yes. But I have to say, I don't know that they wrote her off the show. I have a feeling she wanted out. I just have a feeling. Okay. That's smarter than what I thought. Cause I thought like she might be difficult. Cause remember that one interview, I maybe like she was just causing trouble. And even um, on Les Culturistas, Melanie Linsky said like, no one's like Juliet, you know, in a way where I'm reading between the lines. I'm, I can't be certain that's what she meant, but I was like, maybe they're getting rid of her cause she's psycho, but you're right. Maybe she was like, I don't want to fucking be on a show for five seasons. Get me yeah. out of here. I have and like, Scientology meetings to get to yeah. and push-ups to do. Wait, is she, she's not Scientologist, is she? Of course she is. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, that's not great. But yeah, like in my opinion, what people are saying too is that she didn't like the direction that her character was going. And like, I feel like maybe she just said, great, I had a great ride on the show. Like I'm done, you know, two seasons. You know seasons. what I would have done? 
Have the young girl in the cult fucking kill her. Have it be a weird accident. Have them hunt yes. her. Like, there's just so... Melanie Linsky choke her out to fucking death. The do- Like, I just think it's just so hokey. It's like Christina Ricci Gina tripped Barbatol. with fentanyl. Like, yeah, or fentanyl, up. yeah. Like, tripping and, oh, oh, like, in your back. Like, is this Benny Hill? Yes. It just was so <laughs> ridiculous. But also, like, them all agreeing that they're going to, like, what's it called? Like, humor Lottie and her delusions, but then all get bloodlust. Like, I just, it's fucked up. The What I did love was Coach Ben, I think, burning down the cabin and trying to kill them all because yeah. they're psychopaths. But, like, that's cool because now I'm ready for the third season. I'm like, <gasps> What are as these girls going to do? What are they going to do? Like, yeah, but the thing I've said about this show to you, like maybe off mic, but also on other another podcast that we did, is like I find there to be a huge disconnect between the now and the bat and the and the past. The past, I'm locked fucking in. Like I am into all those actresses. I'm into the performances. I'm into the plot. The coach Ben wears fucking crystal. Like all of the stuff. There's good stuff going on there. The present is like. It's like, to me, I don't watch How to Get Away with Murder or like, but it seems like one of these like soapy ABC shows like Grey's or something where it's like, what is what is happening right now? Like, I don't understand a lot of the choices that they're making. And the cop dying, how are they going to cover up the cop's death? I didn't understand Walter Tattersall had that whole thing planned out. And I was like, what what's even going on? Like, it was very confusing I just had such high hopes. I was such a diehard. Thank God I didn't get a tattoo because (laughs) I am upset. Well, there is a sophomore slump with a lot of shows. Hopefully, season three, they hear some of the feedback and like, because I was deep in the comments too and people were like, maybe I'm done with this show now. Like, you know, like they just, people were not satisfied with this season. No, and the thing is like, they didn't have to wrap up the Adam stuff. Like, they didn't have to rush. It felt rushed and crazy and haphazard. Honestly, if you needed to kill off her, like, I'd rather fall off a cliff or get into a weird car accident. Like, yeah, I just really hated it. And I hated, you're right, like, everyone with guns right away, the cops and Elijah Wood and everyone's there and the husband. It, it was bananas. I yeah. really am upset. But you're right. The young storyline is so compelling. I would honestly watch a show with just the young girls. I also caught up on SVU. Um, I was like three episodes behind. I'm just the last one. I'm the last one because I felt like I had to watch that OC crossover where like, the last one I watched was the one where like, all these women are being attacked and they don't, and it seems like people are maybe hiring someone to do it. Yeah. But they just end the SVU episode because the answer is in the OC episode, pretty much. Oh, wow. And so That's why I was, I was confused. And so I didn't <laughs> want to, and so I had to, yeah, so I had to catch up on OC and I'm almost there. I'm almost caught up. So I have like two more OCs and then the last um, uh, SVU to watch. So I haven't seen that Rollins is back and pregnant with Sonny Carisi Jr., but I know that she is. And uh the real actress, Kelly Giddish. She came on our podcast. She was probably with child and just didn't tell us her best friends. How dare. But exciting news for her. Congrats, Kelly and Amanda. And yeah, I don't know how this whole season of SVU like kind of was weird to me. Oh my God. I, you know, that article, sorry to jump ship. We do also have to start this pod, but the New Yorker article you sent me on the cancellation club. Okay. 
really got me going. So there's a club of thought criminals, canceled writers, and they meet up and they all act like victims. They all act like the world is unfair. And then they are the craziest group of people I've ever read about. Like one of the authors in quotes wrote, I've done enough psychedelics to forgive Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think... <laughs> like that girl. Yeah, you should. No one likes you. Yeah. You're not canceled. That's a bad opinion. And go fuck yourself. But and that girl and that girl is a is a comedian. I just texted Casey. I just texted you the link so we can we can put the link to it in our show notes if you want to see this um, article. But it's just so funny how nonchalantly she describes all the people that are at this party. So this is like a. These are like happenings that this woman who's a psychologist has in New York. A lot of times they happen at the restaurant that's above the comedy cellar where Lisa performs all the time. and Or they happen at apartments or whatever. And it's just like, you know, people that have been canceled sharing their edgelord ideas. And it's like, so-and-so, a, a, a Princeton professor who's married to one of his former students and ha- has been accused of many inappropriate sexual relationships with his students. It's like, okay, give me that guy's thoughts. I need them. And then it'll be like, this girl who wrote an article about how affirmative action is bad at Harvard. It's like, you like, or how it like lets in unqualified people of color. Like, it's all these like horrible people. And then it's like this other writer who's been accused of sexual assault by many people. Like. But I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, yeah. And there was like a guy who's like, I can't get a talent representative because I'm a white man. And it's like, why does everyone else that you're working with that's a white man have a representative? Oh, hmm. The person that's in that article, I actually used to know in New York and that person you're talking about and he was a really sweet, nice person. And I feel like he... Taylor's all the time. Had a mental break. No, when this happens. Like, this yeah. happens to little white men. This happens to... Um, I can only speak in our industry, but like this happens to men that do not get as successful as they want and they become right-wing lunatics and it's everyone else's fault but them. And this is classic. It happens constantly. And I always like, if I wanted to sell out theaters, I think I can go right-wing and I would be the biggest star. Easily. Easily. On Fox News. <laughs> you will, no, I, I literally, have you seen the clip going around of somebody that we both know who is a yeah. comedian back in New York on Newsmax making a racist joke? And then you go to her thread and it's all this like conspiracy shit where she thinks that she thinks that the left is like targeting her. And it's like, girl, there's video of you saying bad shit. Like there's no underground cabal of like people trying to take you down. You're taking yourself down yourself. Like, it, it's just... I just don't get the cancel things. It's like, yep, some things people don't like. Yeah. If you say you can forgive Hitler, I un- you don't understand why people don't like that or want to be around you. Yeah. Like, I don't I don't get the confusion. It's not a... You're right. It's not a conspiracy. We don't like you. Yeah. I don't want to hang out with someone who's down... Who thinks they're superior because they've done enough mushrooms where they can forgive a warlord, a genocidal maniac. You know what I you mean? You had to take so many drugs to convince yourself that you're okay after you got canceled for writing something that was racist. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> that's it. 
That's what happened, Ugh. girl. Yeah, but, but it's a funny article. Uh, we'll we'll post it on our Instagram. We'll link to it in our, yeah. yeah, we'll link to it in our show notes too. I just sent it to Casey, but um, we should get started. I mean, there's there's drag race to talk about, but we just have to get going. We gotta go. Just want to remind everybody before we start that we will be in Denver this coming Sunday. You guys come see us on the 25th in Denver at Comedy Works. It's one of the best clubs. We sold out last year and had the best time. We all went out and got a drink with a bunch of you last year. Who knows? Maybe we'll be up for that this year. I'm bringing a friend, actually. A friend's coming with me to Denver. Um, And then in LA, we'll be at the Bourbon Room on Thursday, the 29th. So you can kick off your like summer fun with coming to see us in LA at the Bourbon Room. It's in Hollywood. It's an awesome room. Great drinks, fun food items, and obviously our beautifully funny podcast. Uh, So come... So a listener, a cutie, a cutie of ours, um, posts a, a little video or a story on their Instagram and it's in Russian and they go, I don't know what this says, but I, I like it or whatever. And so I translated it for him and it said, we, me and you need to have a serious conversation. Uh-huh. So then this person immediately sends me a screenshot that they bought a ticket to the Bourbon Room show in LA and they go, can't wait, ready to talk, whatever you need. And then I had to say, <laughs> I was translating the story you posted. And then he wrote, this is humiliating. <laughs> that is so, well, now you guys are going to have a serious conversation yes. at the Bourbon Room about this. And it's going to be so funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, come see us. The Bourbon Room show is going to be so fun. And that's messed up. Live.com is where you can get ticket links to all that stuff, as well as merch our own website so you can check out where Lisa's doing stand-up. She'll be in Denver doing stand-up as well the day after our show, Lisa? Two days after? I don't know anymore. Around no, then. Monday. Check yeah, work. Monday night. Check the you comedy gotta, works. Uh, it's, life is hard. JK, it's quite easy, but I, I, I just can't even handle that. Let's start <laughs> this podcast. Jesus Let's Christ. Let's get going. We got a good one for you today. All right, guys, today we are doing, I consider this a classic. I don't know why this one's always stuck in my head. I've always remembered it. That's what I was going to say before you said it. I was in my head going, we're doing a classic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't really know why per se, because it's not like there's like a major star in it or anything. But I think maybe for me... It's well, maybe we love it's, the rich. We love a yes, rich and woman. I think it might be one of the first big episodes where it's like the uber wealthy are hiding the crimes for their... I'm sure there's one of those in seasons one, two, or three, but this feels like one of the first big ones, and there's just little pieces of it that always stick out to me. Um, it's called Privilege. It's season four, episode 17. This baby came well, you out... you know what else I learned? Privilege is not easy to spell. There's a little secret eye in the middle of there. <laughs> Privilege, yeah. Yeah, it's an annoying word that you have to over-enunciate. Um, yes. And it bothers me. And they use it in multiple contexts in this episode. I always try to squeeze a D in there, like a D-G-E. Like, yes. I'm always... <laughs> it's just like, a tough yes. word. I do that as well. That's my big thing. I remember that little I, but the D, I'm always like, it's like sledge. I got it, but it's not. So this little baby came out in 2003, February. Exciting. 
We open on a scene just straight out of Golden Girls. It's like an older woman in her back garden at night and she's on her landline gabbing with a friend about a man. Like, what does he really want? Your pecan pies or your nice fat bank balance? And then she like puts her hand up to her wisteria and a drop of blood falls in her hand and she just immediately is like, I think it's a dead animal. And it's like, not on this show, baby. And as she tells her friend, she goes, okay, if Albert's only in it after the sex, you have my blessing. And then- and as well, it's she's- so funny because I was watching this at my parents' house um, while I was doing research. Just, you know, another a fourth or fifth rewatch. Why not? But um, they're like, do you really need to be watching this? And I was like, I'm a teen. But I was like, yeah, it's for work. And then the first thing is her being like, if you want to fuck him, fuck him. And they're like, this... <laughs> I cool love this work. old lady. She's poking at a dead animal in her wisteria tree while giving her, you know, 69-year-old friend, like, a relationship advice. And she's like, yeah, I mean, if it's just for the sex, it's you have my blessing. Um, and, like, she's waiting for this dead animal to fall out of the tree while she's like, you're pushing 70. How many more rides on the merry-go-round are left? And it's just like, this episode reeks of Neil Bear. Like, I just feel like it has Neil Bear all over it. Like, old ladies being brassy and talking about sex. And then she gives the tree one last poke and a full fucking body falls out of it. She gives us a really nice scream queen scream scream. And we see not much of this woman except that she is wearing a maid's uniform. Cut to the debrief by Benson. Uh, The woman who found the body is named Katerina Blundell. And Benson goes, the victim dropped it on her unexpectedly. (laughs) It's like, okay, comedy Benson. Uh, The victim is in her 20s, was wearing a maid's uniform, no ID. Sabler is like, oh, does the woman who found her recognize her from the neighborhood? And Benson goes, I doubt it because the victim has no face. Ugh, ouch, gross. And then Warner pops in and she's like, from the lividity, it seems like she's been dead a while. She says it looks like a suicide, but she's also got bruising on her breasts, thighs, and buttocks. That's why SVU was called. And then Benson goes, maybe a rape and toss? And I'm like, is that a term? Is that like a term that they use all the time? A rape and toss? Or is she just like coming up with that? I don't know if it's a term or not, but I know it's going to be merch. That's for sure. (laughs) We should make... um, Ring toss game? Cornhole? Cornhole or cornhole beanbags. Yeah. (laughs) Let's say that. Okay. But then Warner goes, these injuries are longstanding. Like, this is not what happened right before she died. This looks like ongoing, you know, abuse or something. So they see the building that she must have fallen from is a huge high-rise called Trelicker Tower. And uh, Stabler calls it Millionaire Heaven. And they assume she's a maid who, like, they immediately create a story for this maid. They're like, she's a maid. She doesn't speak speak much English. She's alone in a foreign country. She was raped, but she couldn't call the cops. So then she jumps or she's pushed. Dun, dun, that's the credits. Top of act one, Benson and Stabler are meeting with Tom Payson. He runs security for the Lamerley family and they live in the penthouse of this building. So they go up there and he's like, how do you know it was us? And it's because every building in this, uh, every apartment in this building, their windows don't even open big enough for a kid to fit out of. So the only place somebody could have jumped from would have been the very tippity top, the penthouse, baby. So he says, the apartment's been empty all weekend. The family was in Connecticut until Mrs. Lamerly came home Sunday night. And he said there was no sign of a break-in. He's being a little cagey about letting them look around. And then Benson pulls 
juggles the whole, like, we can come back with a warrant and a couple of CV crews if you want. And he's like, fine, let me just warn the old lady. Oh, and also I forgot to mention that Payson mentions, or they meant the cops uh, discuss how he used to be a cop. Like he's been with the Lamb release for five years, but he used to be a cop at the 2-9. So we meet Candace Lamerly next. And she's played by Michael Learned, who is an Emmy award-winning actress from the Waltons and most recently played um, Dahmer's grandmother in Dahmer on Netflix, if you watch that. And she's very classic SVU rich old lady. Like, detectives, can I help you? I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Like very Connecticut lockjaw and all that. And she tells them that all of the help had the weekend off. So they go out onto the penthouse balcony. They see that it looks right down onto where the body was found. And they're like, we're going to need to look at security camera tapes and have CSU come out here and check the scene. And they're like, don't touch the railing, old lady. And she's like, oh, so, you know, we're about to get investigating because this seems like it's where the person jumped from. At the precinct, Munch is downloading everyone on the Lamerly fortune, which comes from the late grandfather's real estate business. He had the cash, grandma had the class, they say. So the son, Douglas, runs everything now. His wife lives in Bermuda and rarely leaves. They have one son named Drew who just got back from Europe. And then they're like basically talking about how granny's like a tea party, charity kind of lady. And that's what they were doing out in Connecticut. They see on security tapes, a woman in a maid's uniform entering with her own key at 440. 45 on Saturday. And Cragen's like, any reports of missing servants? <laughs> Which I just thought was a funny line. And um, they're like, no, everyone is accounted for. So who is this woman? So now Melinda is in absence of a face. Melinda is running dental prints and everything on this person because facial reconstruction is not possible. There's too much damage. There was no drugs or alcohol in her system, no fluids, but traces of lube or spermicide. So it means the attacker used a condom. Bruises and strap marks that are on her body are old. Finn points out that this victim might have just liked rough sex and uh, none of this proves that she was raped and like the, the marks on her neck could have been erotic asphyxiation and the marks on her body could mean she's an S&M junkie, like who knows? And so Melinda goes, I guess it's possible the degree of violence does seem controlled. And then another interesting thing is that they found one of her shoes and it's a black patent leather stiletto. And Melinda, like Benson, knows her brands and goes, this is pretty high end for a maid. And she goes, nice stockings too. So Finn's putting it all together. He goes, she's wearing nice high heels, fancy undies, dressed like a maid. This sounds like an out call fantasy to me. I did not know what that meant. An out call is a visit to a customer's home by a professional. I didn't know that. So there we go. It's like any fantasy, I guess, of like the FedEx guy or a nurse coming to your house or any of that. In the next scene, Douglas Lammerly has entered the chat and he is played by John Bolger. He has a sort of an older, balding Bradley Cooper vibe to me, especially if you go to his IMDb and you see his young picture. He was kind of, he had like a Bradley Cooper thing going on. He's been in all of the Law and Orders and you guys might remember him because in the episode we've already covered, which comes later, I believe it's season six, the episode we covered called Identity about the two twins where one is a girl and one is a boy, but not really, that he plays their father. So if you recognize him, it could be from that. He looks at a picture of the security footage of the woman entering the apartment and he goes, oh, I think that's Ana Rivera. She worked for them for a month. They learned that she lied about her um, legal status and they had to let her go. She was very upset about losing the job, but they did give her three months severance, which is, they say pretty generous. I feel like it's pretty generous. Um, and Stabler's like, bro, 
She was wearing stilettos and pricey underwear. I don't think she came up here to polish the credenza like a little stabler sass. And he also explained that her body showed signs of repeated violent sex. There's a lot of back and forth with this guy like, what? What are you saying? You know what I'm saying. You don't think I had anything to do with this, do you? And then the subject turns to his son. How well did your son know Anna? And he's getting really mad now. He's like, he was in Connecticut. We all were. And he's getting really pissed. But the mother's like, calm down. Yelling is unseemly. You know, she gets him to be quiet. And then they're like, do you guys have an address on Anna? And she's like, the grandmother's like, we'll get it to you. No problem. She's being very cooperative. Suddenly, a CSU guy interrupts and goes, detectives, there's something you should see. And I think this would make good merch. Detectives, there's something you got to see. We hear that all the time. He found prints on the railing that match the ones on the balcony door, but only hers. There are none inside either, but he goes, granny looks like a clean freak. So from the prints, it kind of looks like she hung down from the railing and then changed her mind and tried to pull herself up because they were smudged. But now, you know, we're at the apartment of Ana Rivera and we're discuss- we're trying to fight- track her down. And a landlord is letting them in. Classic SVU landlord. He's like, I don't know. She's from Guatemala. She's quiet. She's clean. She paid her rent. So when she tells the landlord that Ana is dead, the landlord's like, damn, what am I going to do with her stuff? And Stabler takes a brush and a toothbrush for Warner to confirm the positive ID. So now we're back at Melinda's house and she goes, guess what? These items that you grabbed are absolutely unhelpful because they're both brand new. She also shows them very fine cuts on the victim's fingers. And they're like, hmm, that seems like weird for a maid. Like, And she, they swabbed and she didn't find any household cleaners, but did find a specific kind of acetone that is used exclusively for cleaning motion picture film. Interesting. Whoa. Maybe she, yeah, done, done. Maybe she was a film student, they guess. At the precinct, they have confirmation that the Lammerleys were all in Connecticut. There's even a picture of Drew running a red light in his little Audi at 6.10 p.m. on the night of the murder. So Munch, obviously, who always gets the grunt work of like, go through 9 million directories and find this person. He goes, guys, there's tons of film schools in New York. He's really complaining. He's like, and also a kid not showing up to film school class on a Monday morning is not exactly setting off any alarm bells. So Olivia's like, okay, well, there is a student named Carmen Trancoso who was supposed to screen her film at the new school and never showed up. So now they're at the new school. They're talking to Carmen's friend, a girl named Susie. She's like, what's going on? What happened? They're being cagey. They won't tell her. She shows them Carmen's stuff, tells them that Carmen is from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and that she was doing pretty well here, even though her English wasn't great. They find a picture of Carmen, who is beautiful, like most of the victims on the show. And Susie tells them she recently broke up with a boyfriend. And she said that Carmen said she was going to make the ex pay. And that the ex-boyfriend's name was Drew Lammerly. Dun, dun, dun. So we're connecting the dots here. Back at the precinct, Benson's adding Carmen's pick to the wall of info, you know, the little uh, homeland wall that they always have going on, and says, the Emmy confirms that DNA proves it's Carmen Trancoso, Drew Lammerly's ex, who is the victim that they have found. So Ana Rivera has vanished, and there's no record of her on any flights. And suddenly, in walks Drew Lammerly. Susie calls him. He thinks he should make a statement. And then they're like, about what? And he goes, Carmen Trancoso? It's my fault she's dead. <laughs> Music swells and we fade to commercial. For some reason, this Eric always- Eric Von Detten. 
This is Eric Von Detten. He's a child actor who was in a ton, ton of stuff and actually voiced the the psycho neighbor kid named Sid in all the Toy Story Wait, movies. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just found that out when I was looking about uh, looking him up. He, he doesn't just... act anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, it looks like he stopped. He came out of retirement, they said, to do one Toy Story thing in 2010, and that's it. I wonder what he's up to. I know. Well, oh, actually, his Wikipedia said he's like a banker now. He's like, or business, like investment banking type type of stuff, which he kind of has the look for, you know? Yeah, I remember him the most from Princess Diaries. Yes, that's, I that's knew where. that was. And we know that's a blind spot for old Kara. Well, it's also, um, he was a lot, he was always on the covers of like Tiger Beat, J14. Like he was part of that crew of oh. young teen heartthrobs with highlights, so... Well, he's a little heartthrob. He's married with kids now and he's doing like regular business for work, but I'm sure people recognize him all the time and I'm sure his episode comes on all the time. But there's something about the way he says Carmen Trancoso. Like I always remember the way he says that. And when I think of this episode privilege, I go, I'm always like, is that the Carmen Trancoso episode? Like because of the his like a rich kid pronunciation of her name. But anyway... So top of act two, Drew's giving them all the info. He's like, Carmen and I dated a month. It was really intense. It was so intense. I had to end it. He broke up with her 10 days ago. She took it badly, kept following him around, showing up at his apartment. Um, And then he last talked to her Saturday. She begged to see him, but he was in the country with his family. So the cops are asking, so is Ana Rivera dead or what? And... Drew's like, no, actually, one of the other maids just heard from her. It turns out she's in Miami visiting a sick aunt. You're like, okay, I guess I'm happy to like close the loop on that, but it he sounds it, it feels like he's lying a little bit. So why is Carmen wearing a maid's uniform? And Drew's like, well, she couldn't get into the building any other way. I told the doorman not to let her in. She must have made a copy of my key while I was sleeping and then snuck in as a maid, or that was her big ruse. So Stabler pulls out the big guns and throws a bunch of pics of Carmen's beaten body on the table and is like, look at this, you little prick. Look what you did to her. And then he admits that him and Carmen had a lot of rough sex, but he's like, Carmen loved it. It was never enough for her. She always wanted more. She wanted me to choke her until she blacked out. I couldn't do it. It was too much for me. That's why I broke up with her. So I don't know. This kid's a good actor because like at points of it, you're like, is he telling the truth? Who knows? Yeah, but you know, it's like, it's such a acting for me because it's like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. If you hadn't, I don't buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we cut to Daddy Cragen gathering answers. Uh, he says there was, uh, they find out there was in fact a 10 minute phone call from the penthouse to Connecticut at 532 on Saturday. The bruising could be consensual. What Stabler's take? And, uh, Stabler's like, this kid's got an answer for everything. So then he's like, all right, well, we don't have a lot right now. Let's like gently and discreetly look into Drew's history, but be chill because these are rich people and they will you know, lean on the brass at 1PP, as we always hear about. So Benson notices that Carmen's date book has her meeting with Roger Birnbaum three times last week. Benson dials the number and goes, guess who I'm on hold with? Roger Birnbaum and Delisle, personal personal injury lawyers. Now, Benson and Stabler are walking and talking with a lawyer who's carrying way too many files, and he admits that he represents Carmen, but he says, I can't discuss anything about the case without your her permission. And they're like, we're sorry to tell you, sir, but your client is dead. And he's like, what happened? And he explains to them 
that, well, they tell her it was that she died by suiciding. Delisle goes, well, Carmen was suing for a settlement from her ex-boyfriend for rape. And they're like, did she have a good case? And he's like, honestly, no. Uh, he She told him that their sex life had gotten increasingly violent. She tried to break up. He pursued her. She resisted. He raped her and beat her. But she refused to report the assault to the police because she was afraid it would affect her student visa. So we talk all the time about a lot why a lot of women don't report. This is another reason that's, you know, very understandable. They were like, did you believe her? And he goes, I believe he hurt her very badly. I wasn't sure he raped her, but I took the case anyway because I figured they'd settle. They're the Lammerleys. Who would want this to be public? So now we're back at the Lammerley penthouse and Douglas introduces Benson and Stabler to his attorney. And her name is Lorna Scarry, but he pronounces it scary. And maybe it is scary. I think the name Lorna Scary is very funny. How do you say the children's book author whose name is Richard? I say scary. You say Richard Scary? But I think it's wrong. No, it's Scary. I don't know. I, I, I always thought I grew up saying Richard Scary. This woman's name is pronounced, is spelled like his, but I love the idea of a defense attorney named Lorna Scary. Like what a funny last name for that line of work. She is in um, six episodes of SVU, this character, uh, Lorna Scary. And this is the first one. And her name, the actress's name is Mariette Hartley. She has 136 credits. She's been acting since the 60s. She is prolific. The detectives are like, oh, that's interesting that an attorney's here. We just came from Carmen's attorney. Lorna makes a nasty dig being like, oh, has Mr. Delisle been hit by any ambulances lately? Implying, you know, that he's an ambulance chaser lawyer and not as highbrow as she is. She implies that Carmen was unbalanced and trying to extort the Lammerleys. And when it didn't work out, she took her own life. Drew swears he's innocent and that Carmen liked the rough stuff. And the lawyer is like, and I've got three affidavits from three of Carmen's former boyfriends two of whom she picked up in bars as if that fucking matters. And they will testify that she was an animal. The rougher the sex, the better. So they're really painting a picture here. These people got have got it all figured out. Back at the precinct, Liv is complaining to Daddy Craigs that the Lammerleys are jerking them around. She's like, they've got every base covered. You know, this just feels a little bit too, you know, sewn up and clean because... That's kind of how rich people get things done. The report of Drew's past is pretty typical rich boy. He's with an eight-figure trust fund. He's got a couple of fancy car wrecks, no record, no exes crying rape. He was pretty popular. He played sports. He could have played in college, but he never graduated high school. Like he was good <laughs> enough. He was good enough at hockey that he could have gone on to play in college, but he was like never graduated high school. So what's up? Then he did three years of college in Paris, where I guess they don't give a shit if you finished high school, not in the States at least. And then Cragen says, well, we don't have time to chase shadows. Go check out why he, I love how Cragen keeps being like, there's barely a case here. Go check out one more thing and then we're shutting it down. So he's like, go see if you can find out why he didn't graduate. If you don't find anything, this case is closed. So now we're at Radley High School and a headmaster is telling them that they had to expel Drew and that the school didn't meet his needs. And they, it was a shame they had to expel him because he was a good student, but he disrupted the senior prom. He brought an attractive older woman as his date. They both got drunk. There was an altercation. The woman called the police and accused Drew of assaulting her. The police didn't seem to think so. She dropped the charges, but the school has a no alcohol policy. So that's what got him kicked out. Not that he was potentially abusing someone or brought, you know, 
possibly a sex worker to his prom, but just the fact that he was drinking got him kicked out. So it was five years ago, and this man, this headmaster, does not remember the woman's name. So now Benson and Stabler are at the 29th precinct where this prom assault was reported. And uh, Stabler's on the phone with the captain. He's like, well, we got a date for the prom. It was May 16th, 1997. So then Benson comes out of the police department and she's like, so there's no 61. And Stabler's like, there's no report. And she's like, no, they filed a report, but the 61 has disappeared. And then the it looks like the Lammerleys are sweeping up after Drew again. So... But this time, she said, they missed a spot. One of the cops filled out an aided card in my in my um, captions. It said A-I-D-E-D. I don't really know what an aided card is, but they're kept in a different place than the 61s. So when they were, you know, getting rid of all their evidence with whoever they had on the inside of the police department, the Lamerleys did not get this aided card. It has the list, the victim's name listed as well as an address And the victim's name is Jenny White, 24 years old. So now they're at this brownstone and a woman opens the door and her name is Camilla Hartnell. And she looks like a rich Upper East Side lady too. And they're like, hi, we're looking for Jenny White. And she's like, I don't recognize that name. I've lived here 20 years. I don't know a Jenny White. And then a man starts to leave the brownstone and she goes, oh, hi, Frank. See you tonight around six. And she kisses this guy on the cheek. He wordlessly leaves. And then the cops turn to leave and she shuts the door. Benson thinks this is a dead end. She's like, all right, here's what we got to do. And then Stabler goes, "Uh -uh, hold on a second. He clocks a lady with a guy about to enter this brownstone. But then, but then the girl goes, um, you want to go get a cup of coffee? And the guy she's with goes, um, I guess, sure. So as soon as they see the, as soon as she sees the cops is when she starts this little coffee charade and nothing gets by eagle eye Stabler. He's like, this place is a brothel. So he heads back up to a couple steps. They knock on the door. She comes back and she's like, you're still here. And they're like, yeah, we're ready for the truth now, bitch. Tell us where Jenny White is or we're going to have Vice tear this place apart. And this woman like doesn't skip a beat. She goes, you really think I'm afraid of Vice? All I have to do is make one phone call. And Benson goes, yeah, why don't you do that? And just barges past her and initiates a full raid. They got everything. They got random girls in robes to girls in tube dresses sitting on the couch. Everybody's just hanging around. And, uh, She's there. She's like, everybody up against the wall. Like, this is a raid. And Camilla, the rich lady looking lady who is actually a madam, goes, Okay, okay, I'll give you what you want. She goes, Jenny White stopped working here three years ago. Where is she? She's married to Angus Rochester, one of the richest men in Manhattan. And she's. Why are rich people committed to bonkers names? Like, am I missing something? You just get wealth and then you name someone Angus? I don't get it. I mean, I have a friend whose kid is named Angus, but she's Scottish. I think it's like part of their heritage. But like, yeah, Rochester, just anything ending in Chester, Winchester, Rochester, like, you know, all the Well, we talk about the girls' names and they are cute, but like, what's what's Tinsley's sister's name? Dinsdale? Oh, um, (laughs) Tinsley's sister's name. Darby. Darby. I mean, and those are Southern. Those are Southern wealth. Southern wealth. The Northern wealth, it's like, it's like, I, I don't know what's... Wait, gonna... I rewatched the movie Misery and Bunny McDougal was in the movie. I, I saw. I remember that. I it saw the, awesome. your story. I love... Also, if none of you have ever seen the movie Misery, it really holds up. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's terrifying. It is. Well, because I recently had an audition that I did not nail. Um, I did not get it, but it was supposed to be a Misery-type character. And watching her nail it, I was like, oh... 
this is beyond my <laughs> my yeah, skill set. She's like, fucking she's so like good. She's so, so good, good in that. It's wild. <laughs> But all right, back to anyway, Angus Rochester. Jenny White is now married to Angus Rochester. <laughs> and Jenny and- White is such a trash name. Like that is, you know, that's a bad teen, Jenny White. Yeah, Jenny White could be anything to me. It could be popular that's girl, true. trash. It's very blank slate. Um, but she the woman goes, she probably doesn't want to talk about the past that much now that she's, you know, living her pretty woman fantasy. Like, I, you know, whatever. So now they go stop Jenny White in the street and they're like, Jennifer White. And she's like, I'm sorry, my name's Rochester now. And uh, yeah, she's full pretty woman, like walking down the street with a friend and like has a coat with a fur trim. And they bring up the prom night and Camilla Hartnell, the woman who runs the brothel. And when they bring up Drew Lamerly, her face is clearly like, I remember. And her husband and daughter start approaching and she goes, yes, Drew Lamerly raped me, but if you ask me about this in front of my husband, I will deny it. And then she runs off to be with her little picture-perfect fam. And then Stabler gets a call. Benson says, well, I guess Drew gets away with it again. And Stabler from his phone call goes, well, maybe Drew's luck just ran out. Now they're at the lab with a friend of the pod, Joel De La Fuente, a.k.a. Ruben Morales, a.k.a. Taru to many of you. And he says something bothered him about uh, Carmen's suicide. So with a computer program, he created a wild reenactment of Carmen's death. And he's like, if she had just jumped, she would have landed in a totally different yard, like the neighbor's yard of the one she fell in. But with some propulsion, she lands where she landed. So propulsion equals done, done, she was pushed. So Benson and Stabler do some body-to-body role play that I'm sure made a lot of you very horny when you watched it, where it's like, and then I push, and then you put, and like they're doing a little bit of role play in front of Ruben. And then they decide that Carmen did not die by suicide, it was murder. Because they figured it all out there. They've done the physics. They've done the the cosplay. So now they've got to sell Daddy Kragen. And he's like, you guys have no evidence of who might have done this. But they know it's Drew. They're like, this is not the first rich kid who thinks he can treat women how he wants. And there could be other victims who were bought off. We don't know. Stabler swears he can prove it's Drew, but Cragen is like, okay, first start with how he ran a red light in Connecticut at the time of the murder. And Stabler's like, well, there's a hat covering half his face. And Cragen is like, well, hey, Munch, is there some work you could be doing? Even though Munch is obviously doing work. He's like looking at black and white footage, not just like watching television. And he's like, well, I was looking at earlier footage because we were just looking at the footage of Carmen going into the penthouse, but there's all this earlier footage. And Earlier, I can see, look at the clock. There's a place on the tape where the clock jumps forward 10 seconds. And it looks like a piece of the tape was edited out. So the doorman from the Lamerly building said that a guy from security came by on Sunday morning for a maintenance check. Okay, we know what's going on here. More cleanup from the rich folk. So someone else entered that penthouse before Carmen arrived. They think Drew kills Carmen calls his family in Connecticut for nine minutes, which is what explains that phone call, not what Drew said, which was Carmen calling him from the penthouse to beg him to come into the city. Then the dad jumps in the car and runs a red light for the instant alibi for his son. Now, by the way, Olivia has a Bieber swoop at this time period. It's very, you know, highlights, very smooth, little like helmet of hair. Did I already talk about Bieber on this podcast? Mm, in I'm general? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> I saw a clip. So like Kid Leroy is on stage singing and then like 
Bieber's off to the side on the railing of the stairs to get onto the stage, but he's blacked out drunk. So he's super drunk, but he's singing. Voice of an angel. I am a stan forever. I am a Bieber head. Like he sounded so good. Hitting every note, bent over, blackout drunk on a railing. And like the kid Leroy is like kind of laughing at him. But like, even when he's singing, I forgot the words, like sounds incredible. Wow, you're a believer. I'm a believer. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a believer. I mean, I love the show, uh, uh, the song. What is it? Love Yourself. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch I like. I like Sorry. I do too. I just kind of was like, whatever, I like him. But watching this like just... Someone's cell phone video of him singing like an angel. Well, you know, he was found, like, he can play a bunch of different instruments. Like, I do think he was found by Scooter, because he is, like, a musical kind of, like, wonderkind, you know? No, he is. Well, there's, like, a video um, circulating on Instagram where it's a, like, a Diane Sawyer type, but I've never heard of her. And she's like, so people say you're just a marketing thing and you're just a YouTube marketing, a product of marketing. What do you think? And he's just like 13. The comments were like, why are you beefing with a 13-year-old boy? <laughs> but he goes, um, I don't know. I mean, it's really cool that I live in this tiny town in Ontario and was able to get discovered and am now like a huge star. It gives hope to other kids for that live everywhere. And then she names some other, she goes, well, what about this person? He's from your town and he's a newscaster. And, she, and he goes, yeah, he's Canadian. No one in Germany knows who he is. Don't you think? <laughs> and, How are you letting a 13-year-old fucking school you so hard, lady? And then she didn't answer and he goes, do, do you think that? And like, he like, yeah, he schools her. He schools her. <laughs> but it's like, why are you against this child? But it's how they treated Britney Spears and all yeah. these young performers for yeah, yeah, yeah. just mad for no reason at these talented young kids. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone can really deny that Justin Bieber has musical talent. But if you want to not like him because of his attitude or swagger or whatever, that's, you know, do do you. But musically, he's very talented. Yeah, so if you want to see this video of him drunk, I watched it maybe three, four times in a row. Ooh, okay. I loved it. I'll check it out. So where were we? That's where that's where we are. That's the that's the do 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 do. That's the live hair check for the day. It is yeah. a Bieber swoop. Okay. <laughs> no, um, for a second, I was like, "How did we get here?" Oh, yeah, yeah the hair, breaking the news. Hair. I put it in as a fully out of nowhere note. So now back to the case. Stabler is like, Drew must have had help with this case because, like, with this cover up, because there's no way that he would have been able to leave no trace of himself on this balcony, but make sure that Carmen's prints are still there. So then Finn appears out of nowhere. With the mic drop and goes, yeah, here's how he did it. Guess which cop interviewed Jenny White five years ago? Dot, dot, dot. Tom Payson, the Lamerly security guy. If you remember, he was a cop at the 2-9. That's where the 61 disappeared from. Fuck, these people have inside guys. So they bring in Tom Payson and he is playing dumb. Finn and Munch are laying it all out for him doing their little Finn and Munch act that they do. They're like, here's what happened. Drew invites Carmen over, tells her to dress as a maid. They fight. He rapes her, pushes her off the balcony. 
than the cover-up. She has no face. She's in a maid's uniform. Why not move Ana Rivera out of town and make everyone think it's her? But then the stupid cops figure it out anyway, that it's Carmen. So now they got to paint her as a slutty nut who takes her own life because of losing her rich boyfriend. Who could think of all this? Someone who knows the cops, the way they do things. You, Tom Payson. And he goes, wow, SVU, I thought you guys were just the panty police. And he's like, but you guys are on another level in dreamland. So they're like, Carmen, he's the guy's like, Carmen was a mixed up kid. She died by suicide. And looked at the, and look at the evidence, you dumb bastards. This guy is so smug. He stands up like he's going to leave. And they're like, you must have forgotten the law since you've been off the job for so long. And Finn sits his ass right back down. And he looks a lot more nervous. So now we finally get to discover where the country home is in Connecticut. And it's in Greenwich, which is, very close to where I grew up. I don't really understand why you would have a country home there, but I guess it's probably a lot easier than going out to the Hamptons. Not as much traffic because nobody's really going there. Benson and Stable are at the Lammerly residence in Greenwich, Connecticut. And Mrs. Lammerly enters wearing a very rich lady scrunchie slash hairpiece. Like, I don't know what it is, but her hair is pulled back with this little like a bit of flair in the hair, I would say. Her home is decorated with dozens of chairs that you would never want to sit on. And she's on her way out to another charity thing, so she doesn't have time to talk. And they're like, we need to speak to Drew. And she goes, that's not possible. He's my escort for the night. And then Drew enters in a tux and they tell him they know he was in the penthouse. Grandma's getting worked up. No, he was with us out here. Tell them, Drew. And he asks if they're, they can do this somewhere else. His grandma is not well. So then Stabler brings up Jenny White and Grandma. Grandma's like, got the look of recognition on her face. And she goes, I knew this would come out eventually. I told you, I told your father, he wouldn't listen. She said, she thought Drew should take his punishment for hurting Jenny. And she admits that he did assault her. And she wanted to protect him. So she did send him to Paris, but she insisted he get help. And she sent him to six months in a psych hospital. He was a child then. He's a grown up now. So I love how this is all, the Jenny White thing is happening all just, I believe, out of the statute of limitations for this time. Because it's five years later. So I don't think they can, even though they're all admitting to it now, they must all know that he's not in any danger of getting arrested for that crime. So she tells them, give him a test. Go ahead, give Drew a lie detector test. Like, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, so if you think that Drew didn't kill Carmen, who did? And Drew goes, Tom Payson. He was obsessed with Carmen and he wasn't in Connecticut with the rest of the family Saturday night. So they're just throwing their guy Payson under the bus here. Cut to Huang giving Drew the polygraph. And he's asking him some pre-test questions about his relationship with his parents. He says, well, my mom isn't well. She hasn't been for a while. My dad works all the time. So I guess you could say we're mutually indifferent. He plays a card trick with the kid and he's like, you have to lie to me no matter what, even if I guess the correct card. And so he does it, he does it, he does it. The guy lies and then he shows him, look, the machine clearly registers the lie. So... I don't know why we always go through this charade with the lie, detector, lie detectors when they're not admissible and people can learn how to beat them, but here we are I again. I want to take some for fun. We should organize something. I would love to take one. I would love yeah. to see if I could control my breath and beat it. <laughs> I bet I could. I, oh, I actually have taken one. I don't know why I pretended I didn't. You haven't? You've <laughs> taken one? I forgot. It just came to me. Lu the Lucas Brothers did like a fun little show at Montreal one year, just for laughs where they attached their friends to lie detectors and asked funny questions. So I, d I did do that. But I'm not really... 
they were just like, have you been to jail? And I was like, yeah. Like, <laughs> they're like, have you ever done that? I'm like, sure have. Like, yeah, I you wasn't. had no incentive to lie at a comedy show. We got to try to get on there and like beat it. But what they have to ask us about a crime we really committed. So first we have to commit a crime and then we got to do it. <laughs> yeah, or maybe secrets. Like, I wonder, but I would love to do maybe some, you know, like the Vanity Fair lie detector tests. Yeah. Interesting. We should, we should. Let's look into it. We'll get our staff on it. <laughs> Kidding. That would be us. Um, so now the test, the lie detector's test really starts after the little pre-questions. And he admits to raping Jenny White, but denies raping or killing Carmen. So we cut to the Huang debrief after the test. He says, look at the, look at the printout. Drew passed the polygraph, but Huang thinks he's lying. He's like, I think he used countermeasures to manipulate his body's response. He ramped up his body's response to the control questions so he could coast through the other ones. He beat the machine, and that's why he wanted to take the test so bad because he knew that he could beat it. So I wonder who yeah, taught that's him how what, Well, that's what they teach at private school. That's um, They yeah. teach you polygraph beating. At college prep, all boys, rich kids schools, they got to teach them about the lie detectors. Yes. They teach them all of the different ways that you can avoid getting arrested or having any consequences for your actions. I love that. A little lie detector class. Um, Finn and Munch roll in to say that Payson denies murdering Carmen, but will not dime on Drew, even though his whole family is just drop kicking this guy under the bus so hard. So just when they think they've got nothing they get another magical call from CSU. This is like the fourth time this episode where it's like, we got nothing, bring, and a phone rings and they get some more information. Talking to some nerdy tech now who's different from Ruben, who found some nice high-end suede in the heel of Carmen's shoe. So this suede was not made in the US. It was probably made in one of the Baltic states. And if the perp has the jacket, this nerd says he can match it. So now they get into the mansion to search Drew's room. They got a drunk judge during a poker game to sign on this uh, this <laughs> warrant off of a tiny bit of suede. And they're at the mansion searching Drew's room. Benson immediately finds the jacket with a heel impression on it. They did all this cleanup. They didn't get rid of the jacket he was wearing with a full heel hole in it. They arrest Drew on the spot. And as they bring him out of the, as they wheel him out, Grammy looks horrified. So now... We're at the top of Act 4. The Lammerly lawyer named Lorna Scary blows into Alex Cabot's office offering to make a deal. She goes, man too, five years in a psych institution. And Cabot's like, LOL, he brutally murdered someone. How about murder two, 25 years in regular prison? Scary's like, so scary, scary. I can't, I can't do this. Scary tells them that they're going to, uh, for a not guilty by reason of, of mental disease or defect defense and hands over the results of Drew's psych evaluation. And it finds that Drew had diminished capacity due to brutalization at the hands of his father. First, any of us are hearing of this and Alex thinks it's ridiculous. So now Huang is explaining to Cabot and Benson that this is an impressive strategy. Brutalization is part of Lonnie Athens' violentization theory, which is real. I looked this up. He's a criminologist who has a theory of violentization. He believes that violent environment and example are cause of all criminal acts. And stage one, there's four stages. Stage one is brutalization. Stage two is belligerency. Stage three is violent performances. And stage four is virulency. But in brutalization, the individual engages in violent demeanor through observation and demonstration. This stage is divided into three types of experience, violent subjugation and personally assaulted, or 
being or being threatened. Or number two, personal horrification where witness they witness other assaults or are threatened. Or three, they're violent, violent coaching taught how to execute violent behavior. So I thought that was interesting. I'd never heard of this theory before. But according to Huang, this Lonnie Athens guy interviewed 100 convicted violent criminals and found that they were all abused as children. They all witnessed abuse and they were all taught to use extreme violence in stressful situations. So... Cabot is like a little bit nervous now. She's like, how am I going to fight this? And Huang goes, why don't you just remind the jury what he said about his father in the pre-polygraph interview? Like that their relationship was one of mutual indifference. He never mentioned anything about this. So now at the trial, Grandma Lam Lam is on the stand explaining that Drew's childhood was hard because excellence was expected. And when he failed, he was punished by his father. His mother, Grace, tried to protect him, but she was terrified of Douglas. She turned to alcohol and that's why she's at a clinic in Bermuda. Finally, we understand like where the mother went. Drew hasn't seen her since. So she fled her child and life and is just living in Bermuda. She said Douglas would beat Drew after a flunked test or a lost game. And Scary presents an x-ray of a broken arm and and is like, do you remember what this is from? And she said, it's from when Drew got into a fight at a hockey game, but it's not from the fight. His father threw him down the stairs after the fight in the hockey game because he didn't win it. So the next fight he was in was so bad, he had to be pulled off the other boy and he nearly killed him. So she's trying to show examples of how the father's violence is causing his uh, violence to escalate. So now it's Cabot's turn and she's like, you don't have a problem absolutely thrashing your son in open court, do you? And she's like, well, I fucked up with my son, so don't mock me for trying to do better with my grandson. And then Cabot tries to present that what Drew said to Huang, but Scary jumps in and goes, that's privilege, which drink, it's the name of the episode, but it's in a different way that you thought. This is about client privilege when I feel like this episode is more about privilege of financial privilege and societal privilege. So... Uh, because she's arguing that because Huang is a psychiatrist, even though she's not his psychiatrist, with a psychiatrist, there's an expectation of privacy. And so the judge agrees and says that the mutual indifference uh, comment is out. Anything he told Huang is out. So Cabot regroups and goes, well, did Douglas teach Drew how to rape too? And Grandma Lamerly says, he taught Drew how to abuse women. Drew's mom will testify to that. And Cabot's like, well, she's in Bermuda. So any other examples? And she says, he taught Drew to think that women could be bought. Alex says, well, so does the advertising industry. Uh, Like he must, he learned how to do all of this on his own. And she says, no, Douglas started taking Drew to visit sex workers when he was 13 and told him that you buy a woman and you can do anything you want with her. So that's how we end her testimony. And Cabot is at the precinct now, very frustrated that the defense is clearly winning here. She says, if Drew was a fatherless child of a crackhead, her words, not mine, we wouldn't (laughs) blame them. We wouldn't blame them for using an environment defense. And Stabler's like, well, I do blame his environment. He's a spoiled rich kid and his family helps him get away with it. So Stabler's basically doing like a pre-affluenza argument uh, before affluenza became like a real term. We'll have to prove that he's acted violently before and without provocation. So we got to go back to the Jenny White drawing board, okay? We go and we find Jenny White and she's loading her baby into a car with a nanny. She does not want to talk to the cops who are begging her, please, like we need you. Her husband Angus comes out and wants to know what's up. And he's like, I know all about Jenny's past. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure he's very rich. I'm sure he like somehow vetted her and decided it was worth the risk of marrying a former sex worker when you're a wealthy Manhattan person. So now they're very happy like Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. But Olivia says to Angus, 
maybe you don't know the whole story. And she goes, and he, Angus goes, I'm her husband, try me. So now they're both at the precinct and Jenny is spilling all the prom night details. She says, Drew needed a date. He bought her a dress. He picked her up in his car. For a while, it just felt like a regular prom date. He pulled her into a room at the prom, started to have sex with her, which she went along with because she was a sex worker at the time. But suddenly he slapped her and says, I'm not paying you to enjoy it, bitch. He ripped her dress, hit her again and again, she said, and raped her. And a couple of the other girls at the brothel said he would also hit them back, but he was easier to handle then. He was only 13 or 14. Oof. So at the prom, he was like 16 or 17. And this is, yikes. This kid was hitting women at the age of 13 and 14. So then Stabler goes, oh, so like when his father first brought him in when he was 13 or 14? And then Jenny goes, no, that was the sickest thing. His grandma would bring him in and pick his girls for him. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Huge twist. Big you ass. Know what twist. I just realized, we can never sing on this podcast, but we we forgot that we don't have to sing copywritten music. We can sing uncopywritten we music. We can make. Yeah, we just. Oh, had we a can make up notes. our own songs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We can become composers. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, that's true. We can make up little songs. I will think of one for next time. So, back at trial, Drew is on the stand. It's her. It's it's baby boy. Tiger beats time to get on the stand. He told Carmen it was over. She got upset, ran to the balcony, screamed at him, hit her. He snapped. He saw red. He pushed her against the railing and he says he just pushed her and pushed her until she fell. He says he did not mean to kill her. And Cabot says, remind us how you broke your arm. And at that moment, Jenny walks into the courtroom with her husband and Drew looks spooked. Like you could see it's like throwing him off his game. And he's like, "Uh, I told you, my dad did it. And Cabot's like, I actually have affidavits from the school and the teacher who brought you to the ER after you broke it that said that all confirmed that you broke it while playing hockey. And they remember because they were worried that your parents would sue the school. So maybe the flip side of the privilege is that people remember things about you because they're worried your parents are going to ruin their lives. He's like, no, 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 it was my dad. By the way, where the fuck is the dad? He doesn't show up to this trial where A, his son is on trial and his mother is testifying that he's a fucking abuser and he's, it's all over. The whole trial is that he's this abuser. So then Cabot says, do you recognize this woman? And points to Jenny White. And he says, no, fully lying, you can tell. So Cabot goes, well, I have her statement that you attacked and raped her without provocation. And I think Cabot may have gone a little bit too big here. She made too big of a swing because the defense objects and the judge is like, watch yourself, Cabot. You got to stick to the facts of the case. You can't introduce new material at trial. Because I don't know that, for some reason, you're not allowed to bring up prior bad acts. For some, I don't, I don't really get why not. And maybe because the statute of limitations is ended and because there was never a conviction or a trial for that. But now she asks, asks him, who took you to brothels? And I remind you that you're under oath. And he says, my dad did. And Cabot doubles down on the question and is like, who took you to the brothels? But in the galley, Grandma Lamerly is getting very worked up. She stands up. She's yelling, that's enough. That's enough. And then she does this little old lady moan where she's like, oh, and she falls down. Drew goes totally postal. He tries to attack Cabot. He goes, look what you did, you bitch. You're going to pay for this. I promise you over and over again saying, you're going to pay for this. You're going to pay for this. So now the whole jury, the whole courtroom has seen this kid unprovoked go completely fucking crazy and sort of negate the defense that, you know, he ha- that it, 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 he has to be provoked with violence. So in the final scene, 
Douglas is back, I guess, from whatever little uh, trip he was on not defending himself against being a brutalizer. He leads Benson in to see his mother. She's in a wheelchair and Benson's like, are you ready for jail, mama? And she's like, what on earth? And he sh- and they're like, Douglas told us everything. And she looks at Douglas and goes, what have you done? And he says, I let you turn my son into a monster. And then she said, you are nothing. She screams at him. She's like, you are nothing. I built this family. You never loved Drew like I did. I made him a man. And she keeps calling him nothing and saying, you're nothing, you're nothing, as she as Benson leads her out in cuffs. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. That's the end of this fucked up family. So hopefully Drew goes to jail. I think we can assume yes. Yeah, take them all to jail. Do not pass go. Yeah. For sure. Um, But looking forward to hearing what you've stirred up for us true crime-wise, Lisa. I would love to. We'll be right back after these messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed our commercials. So um, this is based on two crimes. So the first one is more of like rich, rich, rich family vibes. And the second one is cops and spinning women into stupid, dumb whores that deserved it, you know, so and doing a bad job. So those are the two journeys we will be going on. One, you guys you will know the person. The second one, it's in Japan. So I don't think you'll know anything. And let's go. So the first case we're going to cover is the William Kennedy Smith rape allegations. And since it's the Kennedy family, I think I have to continue saying allegations and alleged because they seem litigious. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but it was fun in what some of the articles to see Carol Raswell. Um, she's like on the board of this guy's uh, foundation. So oh, interesting. It was nice. The housewives are everywhere, people. So yes, it's this Kennedy family. Um, so this William Kennedy Smith dude, he is the nephew of President John F. Kennedy and Senators Robert F. Kennedy and Ted Kennedy. And he's the child of former ambassador to Ireland, Gene Kennedy Smith, who is the second youngest of the nine siblings. And his father was Stephen Smith, who managed the Kennedy family's holdings up until he died. So not just financial, but everything. So Stephen kept all the secrets. Gene was John's, you know, sister and yada, yada. So he, William Smith, he goes by Willie Smith. And he was accused of raping a woman he had met at a bar in Palm Beach, Florida. Was he held accountable? 
Hell no. Okay, Hmm. he was acquitted. So Kennedy Smith was a 30-year-old medical student at Georgetown University, and he was accused of sexually assaulting a 29-year-old Florida woman in the early hours of March 30th, 1991 at the Kennedy family's Palm Beach compound. The story is that he went out the night of March 29th out in Palm Beach with his uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, and cousin Patrick Kennedy on Easter weekend. So they ended up at a night spot called Abar, Ubar, AU. Well, you would say Obar, but it's because it's French. It's AU. Yeah. Uh, Obar. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And that's where he met his accuser. So the woman said that he identified himself as William Smith and said, Oh, this is my uncle Ted. And they're partying. And then it wasn't until later that she realized, Oh, fuck, that's Senator Ted Kennedy. (laughs) So. He brought her back to the compound and they went By the on a way, walk. like only rich people have compounds. Like you can, oh, yeah. you can be like kind of broke and have like your front house and then maybe like your back farm and then maybe like your side area where like your cousin lives and no one's ever like, oh yeah, the compound over on the Jennings farm. Like it's only rich people have fucking compounds. Well, yeah, how can a poor person have one? Well, because it really all a compound is is just like a bunch of buildings that your family owns. But I think other people have that kind of setup. We just don't call it that. (laughs) Yeah. Like um, my big fat Greek wedding, like they all live on a block or something. (laughs) The Greek compound. Or like you could argue that the guy from Making a Murderer, he lived near his parents. They all lived near a trash yard. Like that's a compound. (laughs) You're right. But you would never say the making of a murderer compound. Okay. No. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like burning tires. Um, So... (laughs) They went on a walk on the beach, during which time he allegedly tackled and raped her. She said she began to leave and started to walk away and was attacked. Um, She tried to run to the pool area, and that's where he physically tackled her. He held her down while he lifted her dress and um, pulled down her panties. She said she struggled and kept telling him no, and that after the assault, he kept telling her that he did not rape her. So she... She called her friends right away for help after the events. The official Palm Beach police report on March 30th reveals the emergency room doctors at Humana Hospital who examined the woman after the alleged attack said that she had suffered a possible rib fracture and that she had abrasions and bruises that they reported as minor but were there. Now, Smith is rich and smart, and he denied talking to the Palm Beach detectives. Um, Of course, he said lawyer. Lawyered up. He did not make any statements, any chats with the cops. After the report was made public, the lawyer for the accuser charged that Smith had hired private investigators to intimidate a material witness. Smith and his attorneys, of course, denied this. Um, They also had nine months to come up with a story and answer for everything. So, like, the court case didn't happen until December, and this happened in March. And so, you know, the victim had to give five statements. Her deposition took three days, and there was 720 pages of deposition. He never had to give a, a statement, never did anything, had access to it, and then had nine months to see everything that she said to come up with whatever he wanted for it, mm-hmm. you know? So the rape trial begins December 2nd, 1991. December 2nd is Britney Spears' birthday and World AIDS Day, and I'll remember that forever. So the judge of this case was Judge Mary E. Lupo, um, and she barred prosecutors from presenting testimony from three other women who claimed Smith had assaulted them. So, yeah. 
That sucks. So three other people had accused him. They were not allowed anywhere near this case. Um, And the judge, like everyone else, was just like really into being with the Kennedys. Like she was greeting Sergeant Shriver in her courtroom after being introduced to him by Smith's attorney, Roy Black. So she was like out there taking photos with part of the Kennedy family during this fucking trial. One member of the family, for some reason, said, don't worry about us for dinner. We have strategy sessions every night at dinner at the compound. And that was reported by Vanity Fair. Um, Also, part of their strategy was not to appear too rich. So no limos, no chauffeurs. They arrived every day in like a truly beat up 1989 Mercury station wagon who that was driven by their longtime housekeeper. Um, So still a little rich. I mean, they didn't drive themselves. And none of the family was spotted out in Palm Beach during this time except to go to church. So they would all go to St. Edward Roman's Catholic Church where photographers were ready to take pictures of them. And they have pictures of Smith like kneeling at prayer. But no nightlife. They didn't go out anywhere. It was just compound church court. Um, Doing research for this, it also is like clear they have connections to everyone and very expensive PR. The spin is wild. Like, it just talks so much about his foundations and all his credits and just the way a lot of the articles were framed. It's like, oh, you've been a prominent family for 40 years in the States. Like, it's... it's glaring, or maybe it's not, but for me, it was obvious. So he took the stand in his own defense and said that he had sex with the woman, but that was consensual. So the old, she said yes, defense. Millions of people watched this nationally. So this was a big TV event, media circus, you know, a Kennedy rapist. Even though the media circus um, was happening, her identity was kept secret for a really long time. And millions of people only saw her as a figure behind a gray or blue electronic circle. So depending where you live, I'm sure the color was different. Uh, From the incident to when she entered the courtroom nine months later, she had never made a public statement or appearance at all. The Kennedy family was never worried about the trial. And Vanity Fair reported that from the first day, there was private talk about the victory party that would follow the acquittal. They were not nervous. It's no secret that prosecutors that work from the district attorney, um, like they're not as good as the defense team that a Kennedy could hire. Um, And so that was a big issue in this too. So the prosecutor was Moira Lash and she was a star in her office. And this is very SVU. We always say this isn't real, but she had nearly 100% track record for convictions. And in 1987, she was named prosecutor of the year. So damn, you know, yeah, right? Yeah. Smith had Roy Black And he was known in Miami legal circles as the professor. And, you know, he just defends murderers and drug traffickers. So a real Lionel... Granger. This is that's <laughs> who I'm imagining in all of this. For example, one time he defended, like, this is how good of a lawyer he is. One time he defended a woman who was charged of drowning her three year old son. And he succeeded in keeping the jury, like, keeping the jury from the fact that her other children also drowned in a sink. <gasps> oh my God. Like, he is a very good lawyer. <laughs> so, Evil. and then. Evil is a better word, yes. Um, and then, <laughs> he's the shit. Okay, so um, Black also had a team of three other lawyers. So he had like a team of four lawyers. Um, Smith was um, also like, Black took a really low rate. So he only charged $250,000 
for this and it's okay. just to get publicity. And I guess that's like really cheap for like a Kennedy family, but don't worry. They still spent tons of money. Smith um, was able to hire five private investigators who worked for months digging up info on the victim, her friends that she called that night after the incident, like full on investigate. Like, I don't understand how this is even legal or real or like, yeah. Aren't you supposed to be like a quick, swift trial? Like, it's so fucked. Also, Lash, like, you know, she's a woman, so that adds probably to it, but very unliked. She was a very unliked, not friendly. Nobody was rooting for her. She was getting daily bad reviews in the newspaper and on television about her somber style, never playing it up to the jury and never deviating from her pre-written questions. And they call, you know, as I said, she's a woman. They called her shrill often. And Casey Novak vibes. She also went after the judge. She tried to get her to recuse herself because she was prejudiced in favor of the defense. The motion was denied and it was catastrophic. Like it was a big error. Um, But she still believes that there was prejudice and this um, judge shouldn't have done it because also her co-counsel, Ellen Roberts, Ellen Roberts' husband and the judge's husband engaged in litigation against one another over money. Oh my God. Yeah, you have to recuse yourself. You're like personally involved. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But the victim later said that she does not feel any hatred towards Lash and she didn't let her down at all. She admired her and was so proud of the work she did and they formed a real bond. And she was like, everyone kept calling her like ice queen. But the night the verdict came out, she came over, we cried and hugged. And I know she did her best. She said, I strongly believe that Judge Lupo couldn't stand her. So... Oh, she's taking selfies with the Kennedys. So she's a different kind of person. I remember this. I remember the blue, the blue bubble over the face. You do? Mm -hmm. I remember her talking with the blue bubble. Whoa. Yeah. Because this, this trial was when I was like 12, probably. Did it, when was the trial in 92? 91. Still 91. I was 11, but I remember it being on. Damn. Yeah. Okay, so the trial lasted 10 days. Quick. The two sides, though, called 45 witnesses. And when the woman took the stand, she this is how she described things on the stand. She, she said that she felt perfectly safe because it was the Kennedy home. There was a senator there. So she assumed there would be really good security. And then she started weeping on the stand when she was describing the attack. And Vanity Fair reported that it did send chills through the courtroom. In quotes, she said, I thought he was going to kill me. Because she took the stand, then Smith also took the stand. And um, whatever, he was a very good witness too. Vanity Fair said they were both good witnesses, whatever that means. So his take was very different than hers. And he framed it as a pass, like him as a passive participant. So he's like, she picked me up. She unbuttoned my pants. She massaged me. She, she, she. That's what it did. But like the whole time the victim was speaking from a place of violence and he just talked about it like it was sex. So December 11th, the jury deliberated for 77 minutes. That's it. And it's a six-member jury. Um, and that's a Florida thing. Really? Um, but yeah, like I guess for felony cases, Florida, it's six. Oh, okay. Yeah. Honestly, like this was so fast that the Kennedys left court and just got to their compound as they were asked back to court. So... Um, It was so quick and um, he was acquitted on all charges, which included second degree sexual battery and misdemeanor battery. 
Fun fact, one of the lead defense attorneys, Roy Black, who I keep talking about, ended up marrying one of the jurors. No. Shut the fuck up. Now, so he married Lisa Leah Haller in 1995. She was quoted to the Associated Press after the court case that the condition of the dress the woman wore the night of the incident, lacking tears or stains, was an important factor in her decision. What? First of all, did anybody ever consider like what this woman's motivation would be for doing this? Because this isn't a civil trial. Like she's not trying to get money out of the Kennedys right now. This is a criminal trial. She knows that she's gonna have to put herself through all this bullshit, that they have so much money. They're gonna dig up her whole fucking past. They're gonna go after her friends, everything. Like if she unbuttoned his pants and had sex with it, like what is it? She's so remorseful that she had drunk sex with someone that she's willing to go through a nine months of pretrial trauma. I mean, that it's just so, what's her motivation? to make this up. Oh, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, The spin, the patriarchy, I don't know. I sound like a broken record. It's a nightmare. After the verdict was read and after the judge gave a heads up before it was read um, that she said that there there should be no public expression. Like she would not tolerate any of it, but he smiled, jumped up and hugged everyone and could not stop grinning. And it's because he escaped a 15-year sentence. And while he was smiling, four out of the six jurors wept openly as they glanced over at Smith. If they're weeping, they obviously believed her a little bit. I know. A lot of the stuff I've read about this was like, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And with these cases, I guess it's just like hard to have reasonable doubt. It seems he said, she said, without like a videotape of it happening. Yeah. Well, you're going to love our next crime. So, and right after he gave the statement, he ran out to, like, right after the verdict, he ran out, gave a statement, flashing camera lights, media, waiting outside, hundreds of people chanting his name, Willie, Willie, applauding him. So one of the attorneys who brought forth the charges told reporters, so his name is David Roth, he told reporters, according to the Washington Post, and we believe this, the jury has spoken. However, not guilty does not equate to innocent. The rape counselor who helped the accuser the day of the incident told the Associated Press, I believed her then and I believe her today to the New York Times. In fact, at the time of the incident, police, prosecutors, the rape counselors, and the doctors believed her story. And she passed two polygraph tests and a voice test analysis. Roy Black afterwards went on a press tour. He's a fucking ass. He told he talked to USA Today, and what he said about Smith was, in quotes, the jury got a look at him. They saw he was articulate, well-spoken, the antithesis of a rapist. Like, What are you talking what? about? Like, he, every rapist uh, looks like the boogeyman? Like, this is insane. It's it's insane, but it's the 90s. And, we, you know, we just covered a thing where, like, a lesbian's kid was taken yeah. from her. You know? Yeah. Like, this is bullshit. It's just he, wild that the 90s, we were alive in the 90s. Like, it's just so weird that the 90s were so bad. Like, and they're, they're very recent. <laughs> yeah. And so he kept talking about the woman and he was referring to her as troubled, disturbed, mentally unstable. And it's like, you already won. What are you doing? Like, I don't get it. And yeah, the rich just stay rich. And guess what? The defense applied for the state of Florida to assume some of Smith's legal fees. Like he can't afford it. Yeah. So I hope all those people that were outside yelling, Willie, 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 are excited that their taxpayer monies are going towards this alleged rapist. 
So the woman quoted to the post said, despite the enormous price I have endured, I do not for one moment regret the course of action I have pursued. Yeah, exactly. It's just like she didn't stand to gain really anything from this. And I'm, I mean, I'm glad that she, she probably made it a little bit easier for the next person to take a uh, case like this to trial. But if she wasn't reliable, if she was crazy and unstable and all these things that 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 this guy's saying about her, the def- the prosecution would not have opted to prosecute. They would have been like, yeah. your case is not reliable. Like Barbara and Cabot and them are plenty of times like, I can't win this case. I'm not taking this to trial. You know? That's such a good point. So they yeah, took it I mean, to trial. Yeah. More uh, This person with a 100% conviction rate took it to trial because she knew that this was a good witness. And this was like, not that there are good or bad victims, but that this was a solid case, you know? No, that is a very good point. She did later reveal herself. So her name is Patricia Bowman. Um, she's residing in Jupiter, Florida, 20 miles north of Palm Beach. And she came from like money, not obviously Kennedy money in any way, but it's not like she, like you said, was in it to get like a cash grab or anything like yeah. that. Um, her stepdad, Mr. O'Neill's quoted to the Times, this is not about money. This is about justice. Her mom was an executive. Her stepdad had a fortune of $10.3 million. Her family lived on an exclusive golf course. And the, fa- like, uh, the father of her child, she's a single mom, owned some lumber family. Like he was from a lumber family. So... She had a good life. She had money. Um, she had a fun life in Florida. And she did get a lot of speeding tickets. <laughs> she did. Uh, but yeah, she loved to drink and like hang out and let loose and go to nightlife spots. And Vanity Fair asked her, one of the most asked questions about you is what was she doing in a bar at three o'clock in the morning? And she answers, yes, I was out late with friends, but so was he. The issue of what I was doing at three in the morning has nothing to do with what happened for me from that man. That's literally me every single night of my 20s and half of my 30s. Like, what? Being out till 3 a.m.? You're out till 3 a.m. all the time. Yeah, but I never thought of it. Like, she just said it so concisely where it's like, what was she doing? And why is it ever like, what is he doing? Yeah. Why? He's probably looking for people to rape. Why is that never turned around? Like, I just, I'd never seen it so clearly to me, at least. Yeah. So Vanity Fair went to speak to Patricia Bowman in Jupiter, Florida, three days after the verdict. She was asked why she decided to go public after being so private for, you know, the whole time. She said she only agreed to two interviews, Vanity Fair and Diane Sawyer. Class act. Yeah. She responded that she had to because Mr. Black was saying she was nuts and using her name on TV. So, like, she had to come forward and be like, I'm not a lunatic. Hello. And she's a little bit of a Benson. And she said, in quotes to Vanity Fair, besides, I felt the need to get out there and urge victims to prosecute because it's part of the healing process. The reporter said that during Bowman's time on the stand, a woman reporter sitting next to them whispered in their ear, if I were ever raped, I'd never report it. So it's like the opposite. Like we were talking about how like this might encourage people to come forward, but this actually does the opposite when you like, you have so much to lose. I think about Dr. Blasey Ford all the time. Yeah. Constantly. Like I think about her all the time. And that's part of it probably why they treat these women so bad to make sure that the rest of you shut the fuck up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was asked how she felt when the verdict was read, and she said this in quotes. 
I was having so many flashbacks when he came, when he had me in that little room and I told him that he raped me and he looked at me, the calmest, smuggest, most arrogant man. And he said, no one will believe you. And the jury came in and said, not guilty. And I was right back in that room with the man telling me no one would believe me. It's like, she didn't invent that story. Like, I don't know. That's just like people, I don't know. Because also, if I got to go back to the Kennedy compound, I would try to like have a good time. Like, I would try to get an invite back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, I don't know why you would be like, inv- I, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. That she would he, that she would completely fabricate this whole thing. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. He's a doctor. He's living a rich-ass life. Like, nothing ever happened to him. Mm-hmm. And, but, but rape accusations come pretty regularly in his life. So CBS News reported that he was being sued in a civil court by a former personal assistant who alleged that he raped her in 1999. He said these claims were outrageous, untrue, and without merit. And it's like, I mean, they're not that outrageous. <laughs> He blames that his family and personal history is the reason he is uh, vulnerable to these kinds of allegations. The suit was filed by then 28-year-old Audra Sulias and alleges that after a night of drinking in 1999, he forced her out of a cabin into his home where he sexually assaulted her. Um, She was working as a personal assistant for Smith at the Center for International Rehabilitation, which is a group led by Smith that helps landmine victims. She claims that afterwards, Smith left her apologetic voicemail messages, but still this resulted in a relationship that lasted several months, but that the relationship further victimized her. Um, And that's according to NBC News and also like the boss employee relationship to add on top of it. Cook County, my county, what? Cook County Circuit Judge William Maddox ruled that those two phone messages unfortunately did not meet the legal standard of extreme and outrageous conduct to justify the suit. Her lawyer was pissed and was quoted by the Chicago Tribune saying that Smith has got seven women under gag orders right now. He does have power and money to stop these things. In fall of 2003, two other women filed complaints with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission claiming repeated sexual harassment and unwanted sexual advances. He, of course, claimed the these were just disgruntled employees who failed to get promotions. And yeah, so he's just like has charities and is a doctor and is a Kennedy and that's it. It's fucked. It's so fucked because if you do happen to get to court with one of these guys, then, and then they get off, like, then they just use the high profile case as something to hide behind. Oh, well, she's coming after me now because that last woman accused me and now she thinks she's going to get famous from it and she's going to get money from it and blah, blah, blah. So it's like letting these guys off like the one time, it almost gives them more... You know, it's hard enough to get somebody this rich and powerful on the stand and into court anyway. And then it just gives him extra ammunition, I feel like, against future assault, like victims, you know? Because he can just, they, they'll they just say, well, this is what I get now because of my last big trial. And your family killed Marilyn Monroe. Like, I don't trust any of you. <laughs> Go fuck all of you. You deserve all of the Except tragedy Carol in your lives. Except Carol right? Well, and, uh, but she married in. That's yeah. so different. Yeah. But they also, who's the guy that, um, didn't they like drunk driving accident kill a person? Isn't that one of the Kennedys too? Yeah, one of them, the, Ted Kennedy, the senator that was with his son that night got into a car accident and left a woman in the car. And I think he, I think she died. Let me, oh my God, let me look up Ted Kennedy's. Yeah, sorry, she drowned. The woman drowned. Ted Kennedy. 
he his he drove his car off a bridge and like went to go save himself and let this woman drown in the car. It's called it was at Chappaquiddick, so it's always called Chappaquiddick. Yeah, fuck the Kennedys. All right, let's go. No offense if any of our listeners are Kennedys, but I doubt it. <laughs> So this um, next case is the Shiori Inu case. Um, and this is a case about a 21-year-old. year old. Okay, I do have to preface, you will be more mad listening to this than you've ever been mad. And this is saying a lot considering everything that we've uncovered through our research. Oh my God, okay. It is so appalling that it seems fake, that it cannot be real. It is truly insane. So... 20-year-old, 21-year-old college student was stabbed to death in fucking broad daylight outside um, near Tokyo. Um, So basically what happened was she caught the wrong guy's attention one day and nobody would help her and she lost her life. The stabbing happened a little before 1 p.m. on the afternoon of October 26th, 1999. She was stabbed in the chest while entering a train station at JR Akigawa. The town is called Sayatama, north of Tokyo, where this all happened. And she bled to death on the way to being rushed to the hospital. She was attacked by three men who were paid off by her former boyfriend um, and brother. So his brother, a manager from their brothel, and some associates were happy to accept money for murder. So the killers um, that were hired were Yoshifumi Kabato, Akira Kawakami, and Yoshitaka Itu. Um, they accepted 18 million yen or 175,000 US to kill Shiori. They watched her for a few months, figuring out her schedule to and from school, the common areas she visited. And so when Shiori was at the train station, she was grabbing her bike and was about to head to university when she was approached, stabbed in her side, and then fatally stabbed in her heart. And like I said, you know, people came to help, called for help, but she died on the way to the hospital. So who was this boyfriend and how did this like lead to such a horrific murder in the daytime? This dude's name was Kazuhitu Komatsu and she met him at a game center, which is like an arcade. Her and her friends were trying to put coins into a photo booth machine, but it wasn't working. And 26-year-old Komatsu came over and asked if he could help her and started to flirt. They went to karaoke, they exchanged numbers, truly like, a situation that could happen to anyone today. You just like meet someone cute and you vibe. So they messaged, they went on some dates, but then things got weird. After dating him briefly, after a few dates, she like, he began to emotionally abuse her while also buying her super lavish gifts. And she tried to reject the gifts, but he would make scenes in public and force her to accept the gifts. She also realized he was 26, but he told her he was 23 and he gave her a fake name. So name was false, age was false. He wouldn't let her dump him and became increasingly physically and mentally abusive. And then she became extra scared because she started to realize like, fuck, he could be connected to bad people because he always had cash. There were luxury cars. And when um, she tried to dump him, he told her that she would have to pay him back for all the money he spent on her. And he would force her to work in a sex shop and ruin her family. So suddenly she's like, oh, fuck fuck, what, like, what have I gone into? He then contacted a credit bureau to investigate her father's company. She had continued to try to break up with him. He would not accept it and became more and more abusive, started calling her home, making threats to her and her family. After three months of this behavior, she finally went to the police after Kamatsu and his friends forced their way into her home, threatened her, and she recorded the incident. This was on June 14th. 
She filed a police report and submitted her recording, but the cops said she had no case. She went back with her family the next day to file a complaint, and again, the police refused to act. They felt this was her fault by hurting the man's feelings and by cutting off their relationship and exploiting him by accepting his gifts. So on June 21st, she took all the gifts and money she received from him and mailed it back to him in hopes that that would stop him. July 13th, him, his brother, and their friends made posters of her face calling her a gold digger, slut, prostitute with all of her personal information and posted it on telephone poles around her neighborhood and university. The police still refused to interfere. Oh my God. July 29th, it continues. She files a complaint against him because she was sexually assaulted by her, um, by the brother and the friends. And she, the rape was taped. And finally, the police accepted the complaint, but told her they were busy, so it might take time to follow up. So no help, no contact from police till August 23rd. And then what happened was 1,200 letters of false information and defaming comments were sent to the office, the branch office, and the head office of Shiori's father's company. He took all the letters to the police, hoping they would finally stop him. But the detective laughed in his face and said, why don't you just ignore the letters? Oh my God, I'm getting very, very sweaty with anger. (laughs) (laughs) A few weeks after this, the police went to their house, but it was to convince her to drop the complaint and not help in any way, but the family refused. So the cops then falsified the report and changed the complaint about an official complaint into just a report of an incident, therefore not requiring any official outcome. So this led to her brutal murder. So this crime took place four months after Inu had complained to police that she was stalked by her boyfriend after she broke up. The cops ignored her pleas for help, and then she was fucking murdered. After she was dead, the cops went on a smear campaign and portrayed her as a gold-digging slut and implied that the attack was her fault. Legit, the cops like covered up the details and blamed the victim, and then the media ran with all the fake news and slandered Shiori's character. And this was to protect the incompetence of the police and that it was their fault, and they didn't want anyone to know that. They said that she was a sex worker and just a money-hungry slut who deserved what she got. Then there was one hero journalist um, that turned the case and investigation and narrative around. The journalist's name is Kiyoshi Shimitsu, and they reported the truth about the crime, and finally the cops acted. There was a huge expose in Focus magazine. They arrest the hired murderer, Kamatsu's brother, and his accomplices in December 1999. The brother is serving a life sentence, And he got the harshest sentence of all of them, which I think is wild because he didn't do the stabbing. But due to his involvement in the constant harassment of her life and the planning of the murder, he got life. The guy who did the stabbing got 18 years in prison and the other two accomplices were each given 15 years. The boyfriend ended up taking his own life. His body was found December 27th, frozen in a lake, and he did leave a note. There was an internal investigation that showed that three officers altered a criminal complaint filed by her into a simple deposition so they wouldn't have to pursue the case. I guess to keep the crime rate low, the police try to get parties to resolve issues on their own rather than file official complaints. But the Japanese cops were jailed. Yes. 
Yeah. So the cops were dismissed and found guilty. Two were given 18-month prison sentences and suspended for three years. They should just never be able to work again. And then the third got a 14-month sentence and was suspended for three years as well. The dad, of course, thought the the verdict was too lenient, and I agree with him. The crime actually resulted in Japan's Anti-Stalking Act that passed in November 2000. Under the act, two kinds of behavior are prohibited. So it's pursuit and stalking. Pursuit is any act pressuring another person to go out or in revenge for being rejected. Stalking is repeated acts um, that cause the victim to feel endangered. Um, There was also a revision to the act in January 2017 to include cyber stalking and online harassment. And it was because another woman got stabbed after the cops ignored her pleas for help. Oh my God. Why can't they just listen and do their job? So um, pop singer Mayu Tomita was stabbed more than 20 times by a male fan in May 2016. He had posted more than 300 public messages to her, like threatening her life, and the cops declined to act because it was social media and not that serious. She did survive the stabbing, thank God. Yeah, so hopefully more laws will continue to happen since cops are failures. Um, And it still appears that only about 10% of complaints filed actually result in official police action. Oh, God, that one is tough. It is tough. And obviously, like, I'm not in Japan and do not know much about the Japanese. I mean, I was in a kabuki play, but I don't know much about the Japanese culture, like the sources I was using. And I hope they're all credible and good. And I did justice to the story. Um, We do have some listeners in Japan because people wrote us back after another case that we, the one about the young girl that was assaulted by the uh, the American officers over in Japan. A bunch of people wrote into us on Instagram. So if you live in Japan, let us know if this case is still talked about or like you were around when this was happening. And so, you know, with research, you just kind of see what, what, what articles you get first. So when I first saw it, it was like these these cops got in trouble and went to jail. So I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Japan knows what's up. And then it was like, oh, uh." oh. And then I was reading comments because I'm a sicko um, to a lot of the articles. And like so many comments are still victim blaming. They're like, he was part part of the Yakuza. That's on you, you dumb bitch. Like you should have known not to date. Like it's like this, like the comments were doing the thing that has caused her death. And um, I guess cops are the same everywhere. Like they don't want. Yeah, to but take like in the U.S., on. this hap- shit happens all the time, and the cops are like, "How could we have known?" And they don't go to jail. So at least Japan sent these guys to jail. Yeah, but and then I don't like I don't know if they're better at stuff or not because it still seems like they don't want their percentages going down. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but it's yeah. So it's just like I thought to include that one because. There's no other episodes based on it. And it's I think it's like an important case to talk about, but also yeah. just like the smearing and like the cops kind of not doing anything about it. Yeah, 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 totally. All right. Well, we're going to be right back with a great interview, guys, to cleanse your palate from all this darkness. Don't go anywhere. Guys, our guest today is a TV legend. She is probably best known for her role as the matriarch 
uh, Olivia Walton in The Waltons, award-winning role she played. You can currently see her portray Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother, Catherine Dahmer, on Netflix's Dahmer. And you know her today as the stuffy, snobby, escort to sex workers, granny, Candace Lamerly. Guys, please enjoy our chat with the legendary Michael Learned. Yeah, we love this episode. We always love when there's super rich people on SVL. <laughs> Your pearls. We get caught for being heathens. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. We love a super rich lady turned villain and they do that on this show a lot and you're like a classic episode of this. Like you're a kind your of fun character. to play actually, but it was a pretty sordid episode. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, I mean, you've played all different kinds of parts. Is it is it extra fun to play a villain? I mean, I think from the Waltons, you were sort of like a wholesome character, right? You weren't a villainous at all? No. <laughs> I used to fight with um, Earl Hamner, the creator of the show, and say, "Give her, make her make a mistake once in a while. <laughs> Everybody's going to hate her if she's just so wonderful every minute. So and he'd say, like, what? And I'd say, well, have her scold the wrong child. Have her make a mistake, whatever, but give her yeah. something. <laughs> so he would, he'd work at it. Yeah. So it was a collaborative set. Yes, it was wonderful. Yeah. We were a little arrogant. I think sometimes we would say, oh, my character would never say that, you know. <laughs> well, you won a bunch of Emmys for that. Do you look back on those nights fondly? Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. And especially the first one, because I had no idea I was going to win. So I was just enjoying the whole. It was very new for my kids and me. And they sent a limo. And my gosh, my son and my son was my date. So we Aww. here we are in the limo. We drove around the neighborhood just waving at all the kids. <laughs> and then, um, you know, then we went and I we were just having a good time. And when they mentioned my name, I can still remember my son's eyes were like plates and mine were too, I'm sure, because it was a shock. And I'm I'm surprised I was even able to say a word. I was so shocked and scared. It was wonderful, though. Exciting. And I'm calling home and my kids were all excited at home. They were, you know, it was great. Wow. How yeah. old was your son at the time? I think he was maybe 15. Cute. He was around 14 or 15. Did any of your kids like follow in your footsteps for, into the acting world or the or the no. business? My youngest son did a couple of Omen, Omen 1 and 2. Ooh. And he he's just never wanted to be an actor, but he's in advertising. So he's sort of in the business, but not in, as an actor. So with um this episode, this might be too specific of a question since this was 20 years ago, but do you remember shooting um this episode in the penthouse with the beautiful views? No. No. Okay. <laughs> well, it looked gorgeous. Do you remember any of your outfits? You really had a lot of gorgeous, like uh, rich Upper East Side lady outfits. No. I don't. <laughs> In fact, my husband, but bless him, my my wonderful husband, uh, read a synopsis of it just to help help me refresh myself as to what what this what the show was about. I mean, I sort of generally know what it yeah. was. You know, so long ago, twenty years ago, so it wasn't my fondest role. But sometimes it is a little fun to play somebody to try to find in a character that you don't really respect or like. But to try to find where their thinking is or what motivates them as opposed to something you're familiar with yourself. It's kind of that little journey is interesting. Yeah. 
We've heard that from a lot of, we've interviewed a lot of people that are, that usually play sort of comedians or nice guys, nice gals, but then they come on this show and they've got this sort of like evil streak. And we that's interesting. A lot of them have said, have expressed the same thought that, you know, finding like your commonality with this person you don't like is, is interesting. Yeah. Well, one actor we talked to, he didn't, because he was so in the character, he didn't realize how bad he really was. Oh, yeah. And then when he watched it, he was like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you had huge moments. You had a big fainting scene in the courtroom. You're also dragged out, arrested in handcuffs in a wheelchair by the detectives. <laughs> you had like really fun moments, so... But I don't remember any. I remember being arrested and kind of resisting. That's about all I can remember, to tell you the truth. I mean, you've had such an incredible career, you know, on so many shows. I can imagine sometimes it blurs together. I have been very lucky. Having been in this business for like, you know, 50 years or so, do you find, are there things, I mean, obviously things have changed. Are there changes that you think are for the better? Are there things you wish hadn't changed? I've always found, you know, Hollywood has a reputation, but I've never been in that kind of Hollywood groove. I I had my kids, so I it was a job. I'd go do my job and come home to do my job as a mom. So uh, I've never been part of the quote scene here, mm. but it's um, it, but it's been very good to me, and uh, I'm very grateful for it. So um, I'm glad I'm not part of the scene, frankly. <laughs> that scene, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's been very good to me. I, I'm so lucky. I came down here in a little VW bug. I stayed at a motel, which is no longer there, but I stayed there for 12 bucks a night. I had a Raggedy Ann doll and a bottle of bourbon. And <laughs> I didn't know what, I had no idea that this was all going to happen. It was like, my friend said, it's people like you who keep people like me here. You know, um, it was one of those, you know, God's hand is on your shoulder. Yeah. Wow. I love that it was a Volkswagen bug. Cute. <laughs> and then you were just in this, you were just in Dahmer on Netflix, which has was like one of Netflix's biggest hits of the year. Yes, I was. And uh, that was kind of fun too. He's a lovely guy, Evan Peters, a uh, lovely person and a very good actor. And our scenes were just Granny loves her grandson and has, Noah, how could you not know your grandson is chopping up bodies in your basement? Uh, I find that a little hard <laughs> to swallow, but <laughs> apparently she was in real denial, I guess. No, I and did know. you enjoy working with Ryan Murphy? I didn't see much of him, but I do think he's a genius. Yeah, And... Kara is actually from Connecticut. Did you grow up on a farm in Connecticut? I did. It was a oh. small farm. It was 21 acres. And I milked three goats every morning and every night. And I cleaned the rabbit hutches and fed the rabbits and fed the chickens. I didn't clean out the chicken hutches, but um, I did the rabbit hutches and uh, I fed the pigs. And um, we had two pigs. We had two horses. I didn't do the horses. They scared me. <sighs> But I did do the goats, and I had a little kid of my own. Um, her sister had somehow strangled in the hay uh, rack, and so she was. Uh, I was convinced she was crying, and I said to my father, "She's crying because her little sister died. I want to have her. Can I have her?" And he said, "Yes, you can, but you're going to have to earn her." 
So that's why I was doing all those chores. I wasn't being beaten. I'd also stolen <laughs> some money out of his pockets to buy candy for all the kids at school. Oh my gosh. So I had to pay him back. So yeah. And it was wonderful because I, I, I hated going up at night. It scared the heck out of me. But um, once I got to the barn, somehow turned the light on, I felt safe. It's the weirdest thing. Like those animals were going to protect me from the boogeyman. I don't think so. <laughs> somehow getting to the barn, turning the light on, feeling the animals, the warmth of the animals and the smell, um, which was pungent because we had a buck in with the does and they give off a, a really strong odor. Um, but I didn't mind. I liked it. Where was the farm in Connecticut? In Connecticut was West Norwalk. Oh, which is sort of near Dan, uh, near Westport and Derry. Oh, yeah. yeah, I grew up in New Canaan. Oh, you did New Canaan. I used to go to ballet school in New Canaan. Oh, really? Uh, it's really pretty. We're lucky, aren't we? Yeah, and I'm also the oldest of six children. Are you really? Yeah, a mix of boys and girls. Or? Uh, yes, yes, two girls, four boys. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I know you're you're the eldest of six do- girls, right? All girls. Yes. And now I have a half-brother named Tarquin. Oh. The second marriage of my father. My father married again. And um, so I have a half-brother named Tarquin. I finally have a brother. Yeah. Do you still have animals in your life? Not at the moment. I have a cat. And our dog just passed away about a week or two ago. Yeah. I still miss her. I miss her terribly. And I'm working on my husband to try to get another dog. He's afraid I'm going to die and then he'll have to take care of it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or just um, have someone gift you a dog. So then, like, tell someone to just bring it and then there's I'm nothing you can do. All over the plates. Dropping, <laughs> dropping hints there. So I'm sure something's going to turn up on the doorstep sooner or later. And are you still um, looking to do more work? Like, are you ready for more TV after Dahmer? I love working. Yeah. So working keeps me alive. Yeah. Is there a character that you haven't played that you'd like to still play? I can't think of one. A serial killer, maybe. Oh. No, I haven't. uh, No, I I just, whatever comes along, I try to find my truth in it and uh, bring that to whatever the character is. Yeah. So you like being on a set? I do. It's um, for the most part, I've never had any unpleasant experience. And for the most part, it's like you just meet another family and it's very intense, uh, a bond, a very intense bonding for the time that you're shooting or the time that you're working together. And some friends remain friends and some you don't ever see again, but it's a very intense experience. When you walk onto a set, are there um, ever signs where you're like, oh, today's going to be a mess? Yes, of course. (laughs) They're going to be a mess. It's more like I'm a mess. (laughs) I had one day, and it's the only time it's ever happened to me in my life, where I just went blank. And um, they had to send me home. It was mortifying. They they were very nice about it, and it never happened again. But for for some reason, that particular day, I think I, I hadn't worked in a while, and I was so happy to be on a set that my brain just went, went off into the ether. I don't know where it went, and um, they 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 were very kind, and they made they sent me home and mortified. Of course, I was, and then from that time on, there was no problem. But it's never happened to me, and it was just mortifying. Oh, gosh. I can't believe they sent you home. I'm against that. Well, they didn't do it in a nasty way. 
I was just gone. Uh, they, they did the right thing, actually. And from that time on, there was no problem. But they they had to reschedule. I mean, it's a real scramble for them if an actor falls down or something happens or goes up or whatever. Uh, but yeah. I did not get my brain working. And, um, and luckily, from then on, I was fine. But um, it was horrible. It was just horrible. Can imagine. Yeah. Um, what are um outside of the Waltons or where you were, you know, or the nurse where you worked a long time, are there any um sets or shows that you've guested on that you really had a great time or that you were surprised how much fun you had or any just favorite kind of moments? I had fun on Scrubs. Oh. She was a great character and they were very nice, you know, again, very professional. You, you don't become bosom buddies or anything, but they were very professional, very welcoming. And um, I had fun playing that character. It usually has to do with the character I'm playing. And uh, she was a wonderful character. What? Do, who did you play on Scrubs? What was the character? I played, uh, I can't remember her name, but I played a woman who was dying of cancer, but the the writing was so fabulous that she had so much personality and joy of living that um she was just a fun character to play yeah oh amazing it's a fun show i got to yeah. binge that i want to watch it <laughs> and then our other classic question we like to ask is what are your go to craft service snacks when you're on set <laughs> anything sweet i guess but i i didn't really like to eat while i was working um, so yeah, I mean, it always touched me that the craft service go out of their way to try to make the actors happy. And so, so, so as well, the, the, um, props, um, who were in charge of the food for the Waltons when we were all sitting around the table, that was gross. That was truly gross. If you ever watch the show, you'll see that I never, ever ate. I fiddled with food on my plate or I lifted a fork almost to my mouth, but I never ate. Because everything would get spooned out on the plates, all of our plates, and uh, then it would get spooned back into the bowl, serving bowl. Oh, gosh. Spooned out on the plates again, and, and you know, by, by the 60th take, there was no way I was going to put that into my mouth. Oh, I never ate on the Waltons in eight years. I never actually put food in my mouth. <laughs> Ralph, on the other hand, would eat with relish and chew <laughs> up and swallow and enjoy his, mm, not me. No. Do you still do um, events for autographs and stuff? I do, yeah. Wow. I think this is the last one, though. It wears me out because yeah. you're trying very hard to be present in every moment that you make a connection with somebody. So I try to be very there you know, if you will, look into somebody's eyes and really appreciate them. Um, and I remember people, I remember their faces sometimes when I, when I do it a second time, a few years later, I, I don't remember their names necessarily, but I remember their faces. And it, it's very moving because most people remember me from the Waltons and they, they loved that character so much that they bring that love to me. And it's it's wonderful. Wow, well, that's awesome. Great. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to talk to us. And we hope we keep seeing you on our screens. Me too, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Michael Learning. Loved her. Oh my gosh. I just love 
I love someone I that just, says no. I love an old, uh, an, I love an old legend. Yeah. Do you remember this? No. I'm not going <laughs> to, that's it. <laughs> um, She's an it icon. She is the moment. Her. She is everything. And she does love an animal. Um, <laughs> that was, I actually stopped watching Dahmer at the beginning, but maybe I should dip back in to uh, see her role. I'd like to see her be the, be the grandma. So I've, Recently, I've been getting a lot of shark orca stuff just because I've been, you know, the boy got eaten by a shark on the cruise. You oh, know I don't, no, I know about the orcas attacking the boats. Well, that's fun, but I guess orcas don't eat people, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, I that's didn't know like that. the funny thing about them being called killer whales because, like, they don't kill people. Well, this is great because I thought we got to be more scared of them than anyone. And now I'm like, put me in, coach. Like, yeah. Let me pet <laughs> When can one? I go I swim to... with? When can I go free willy? Let's do it. <laughs> I know. I want to ride an orca so bad. <laughs> no. So there was like, you know, kids graduated high school. They're all 18. They go on a trip and they're like at a midnight cruise, like a booze little cruise. And on tape, the boys dare the other, one of the boys to jump into the shark infested waters at night. <gasps> So, and that's when I heard sharks are more wild. So anyways, the boy jumps in and then he's scared. They throw in a buoy, but he's swimming away from the buoy and everyone's like the buoy. And then there's a shadowy figure to the left and it looks like a shark. And they searched for him for days and the shark, I I think the shark dragged him down. I thought sharks didn't like attack unless they smelled blood. Like I thought there had to be blood in the water. No, I mean, that is, um, that's like sexy to them. Like when they yeah. smell blood, they love it, but they don't need blood to eat. Oh God. But that's now I'm getting- horrible. Yeah, but we were on this road trip. So we watched the shark thing. And then we talked about that for a really long time and just like sharks, crocodiles. But I guess Anderson Cooper, my friend was telling me, did a segment where he swam with the crocodiles underwater. Because they don't attack underwater. But I didn't know Anderson Cooper was such a badass swimming I didn't know Anderson Cooper was doing nature shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wild. So whatever. So I'm getting all of this shark stuff now. I can't get enough. And then I love these shark experts who are not scared being like, if a shark swims by you, pop him on his nose and put it And it's like, we're not going to be calm. Okay. Like your calm (laughs) advice is not for us. Like, are you fucking kidding me? But also if you're listening, please don't dare your friends to jump into... Jesus. Infested waters? Because yeah. then um, a fr- one of our friends was telling us that there was like a story where people were on this like boat, again, like an adventure boat, tourist boat, and they were like, do not jump in. These are crocodile infested waters and two girls jumped in and then everyone watched them e- get eaten by crocodiles. Oh my God. I, in a million years, I would be like not even near the edge if I knew that I was in shark or, or croc infested waters. No, but I'm so jealous. There's all these like sea, like seals and little dolphins and orcas that just swim by boats. And it's like, maybe I need to marry a marine biologist. <laughs> I need to get out on the just water. just go to Hawaii. When we went to Hawaii, there were a million dolphins next to our boat. You could just, okay. Yeah, that's, I could do that too. Yeah. Well, well, you know, we got talk about privilege. Rich people suck. I was going to, my segue was going to be, speaking of shark infested waters, let's get back to the Upper East Side (laughs) of Manhattan where people let their fucking kids get away with anything. I mean, we're going to do another case about this, I'm sure. But like when I was growing up, there was this kid named Alex Kelly in the town next to mine who committed all, like committed a, a rape. And then his parents like, 
let him escape to Switzerland and supported him while he did that. And so like, I've just been knowing about cases like privilege my whole life because everybody just covers for their fucking rich children. And that this is just another example of it. The Kennedys, damn, they really know how to cover for their kids too. Money, power, police, all evil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not really a lot of big... What? Either or. I came up with a good either or. Okay. Did I already ask you this? Why I'm living in a haze. I'm so sorry. I but would you rather marry a police officer or a marine? Oh God. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's like a real. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, my brother's in the army, and now it's like it doesn't really involve his life very much. So I guess marine because that's not like lifelong. Like a cop, that's your job. That's forever until you retire. Marine, it's like, could be just, but I know that there's some guy on Summer House, Martha's Vineyard, that's a bad Marine, right? Oh, he's just a dork. And oh, has I no thought game. there was a guy that was like, isn't there a guy that's like controlling his wife really badly? Is he oh, not the Marine? Summer House, Martha's Vineyard, yes. Yes. My bad. I was thinking yeah. of the original and he's a chiller Marine. He just has no game or he's just boring. <laughs> no, the Summer House Martha's Vineyard Marine. That's what made me flip out was Silas. Yeah. He is disgusting, controlling, an asshole. I hate him. But his wife, basically, it's like a COVID relationship. And now they're out of COVID and he wants to control her. But like, she used to be a party girl and like, she's a fun yeah. girl. She used to work at Playboy. Like, he is awful, but she is not better. Like, she sucks. And she keeps just being like, well, now I'm married. So my friendships are different. And people need to get used to me because I'm a wife now. And things are different. And her relationship means nothing until you have a ring. And she's just so in it. But it's like, she's crying at the table because she hates her life with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she goes to the girl who's like the hottest that everyone wants to fuck, who like, is incredible. And she's just like, I just feel bad that you don't have somebody. And it's like, no one wants to be with your guy. Because at one point to the hot, cool girl, Jordan, he goes, I don't want you hanging out with my wife because you're a bad influence and you're a bad girl and you kept her out till three in the morning. And I need to keep my wife safe. And she goes, your wife isn't an autonomous person. She can go home whenever. And why would you think that me as a single person doesn't care about my own safety and you're controlling and I didn't realize your wife has a curfew. And he goes, she doesn't have a curfew. I just need her home by two. And it's like, so you do have a curfew for your oh, fucking and, wife. And this is all about an hour. This is all about one hour of being over. Come on. No, and so Come they on. fuck really loudly. And so now it's an issue because everyone's like, you need to stop fucking so loud. Like the whole house hears you. And so they're trying to fuck quiet. And he goes, I don't want to fuck you quiet. I don't like that. And I can't have anyone else hear my wo- my woman moan. So we're just not going to be fucking now. And it's like, okay. you can't fuck quiet because it's it's like he needs to hear the most. He's just like, like a controlling psychopath. Yeah. Well, that kind of ties into the controlling psychopath who killed poor Shinori Ino in Japan. And today's, so like, I don't know. This leads into what would Sister Peg do? This is our weekly segment where we take point you guys to like a resource or a, a website a book, a podcast episode, something to give you more info about what we talked about in today's episode. And I thought that the story, uh, her story was so sad and like that the police wouldn't listen to her uh, when she was being fully stalked and treated like in a very controlling relationship. And I think there's a lot of, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of signs of stalking that people don't necessarily 
understand like unwanted gifts, letters, texts, damages, like damaging your property, stuff that like, you're like, oh, I don't know. He just got mad or whatever. Like there's a lot of specifics to stalking that I feel like are good to know. So I wanted to point everybody to the Victim Connect Resource Center and they have an article that is all about stalking and it details all the signs, what you can do if you're a victim, like how to document everything. And I think it's like really important if you feel like you or someone in your life is in a relationship that feels controlling and could lead to something like this or are just fully being stalked by someone that they're not even in a relationship with. So you can um, find more out at victimconnect.org and the link to this um, article is going to be in our show notes and as always saved on our Instagram highlight called WWSPD2. Thank you so much for that. Everyone needs to take stalking more seriously. Fucking assholes. Because <sighs> it's a It's gateway. like the woman needs to be fucking dead before they do anything. Yeah. Like, I, I just... Uh, listen, you want you want another fucked up episode? Join us next week. <laughs> October Surprise, Season 15, Episode 6. We're obsessed with all of you. Thanks for listening. Give us a, you know, a nice little review if you got the time. Killing some time in the back of an Uber. Why not? Come see us live and uh, we'll talk to you guys very soon. Bye-bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedappod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at GlitterCheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.